what is going on ladies and gentlemen let me get this I overlay was, off i hand. that for you okay all right there we go what is going on ladies and gentlemen welcome to another episode of faith unaltered i am joined by my co-host del glover brother how are you doing how's your week been we're starting off early this week with episodes bro yeah well it's it's not uh early for me i well actually yeah it is tuesday um so yeah i, I was uh, minding my own business having a good time and all of a sudden i get this email from this tyler saying hey you want to do a show tomorrow so uh yeah with dan chapa reviewing a debate on this total depravity thing so here i am <laughs> well i appreciate you being so flexible dale and uh it's one of the things i really really love about you and so yes we do have a debate review so dan chapa uh had a debate with warren mcgrew uh, about 12 days ago now i think so about two weeks ago on the standing for truth channel and so i invited uh dan on i said hey it's been a while since you've been on last time he was on we debated uh, a long time ago on csg and I uh, said, I'd love to have you back. And he uh, he just had a debate with Warren. And so I said, well, let's review that. And uh, here he is. So, Dan, welcome, brother. Um, it's been a while. So if you would go ahead and give a little background uh, about yourself for our audience. And the floor is yours, my friend. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you both for having me on. I've, I've been looking forward to our conversation. Um, so I guess my background, God saved me when I was very young, and I've been a Christian my whole life, just loved studying God's Word and defending God's Word. And I was a Calvinist, I guess, in, in high school. But, um, you know, as I researched it further, I moved away from Calvinism to a more Arminian position, but always within a Baptist context, because I grew up in Baptist churches and things like that. And... Um, you know, as part of that uh, study, I am a non-Calvinist within Baptist uh, churches, and part of that is um, this movement within Baptist churches of traditional Baptist, the traditional Baptist statement and provisionism and things like that that have come up. So I think that that kind of sets the stage as to how I got involved in some of these discussions. Um, so we can go from there, get into some more history, but that's a, a little bit about myself now. So I'm Arminian, but I hold to perseverance of the saints. Um, so, but I hold to total depravity and perseverance of the saints. So from a tulip of Calvinism standpoint, I'm two point. And then I, I'm not an open theist. I hold that God does know the future um, and that he uses that knowledge uh, providentially, but I'm not also not a determinist. I don't think that, uh, I think God gives us libertarian free will. So I guess that's that's my perspective in a, in a nutshell. Can I ask you, Dan, do you remember, because you and I kind of are similar in that aspect. We both, you know, was in Calvinism for a little bit and then came out. Do you remember the thing that it was that led you out of Calvinism? Like, was there one sticking point or was there just like a conglomerate of things that you're like, nah, I don't buy this. Uh, let's see what Arminianism has to offer. So for me, the wake up call was when I... Um, when I was young, I, I was just reading through the Bible. And when I came across the Hebrews warning passage in Hebrews 10, mm -hmm. um, that led me to uh, question. Now, it didn't immediately change anything. But it but at that point, I was like, I'm not sure what I am. Uh, I'm just going to read the Bible. And so I spent about two years just trying to um, figure out, you know, what, what the Bible was teaching about the, these doctrines and that sort of thing. And I, I guess that started my journey. I think, you know, when I, I think when I finally 
started to understand John six a little better um, is when I realized that I was not a Calvinist. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I guess that's the, uh, the basic picture. Fair enough. Fair enough. So you did say that you are two point Calvinist or non-Calvinist, right? You do uh, hold to two of the points of total depravity. But as I was asking you yesterday, you know, there are some differences between you and how you would define total depravity and how a Calvinist would define total depravity. So I guess that's the first thing I want to ask you, Dan, uh, before we get into. So I'll bring the video up here in just a second. But let's start out with some definitions. So how exactly would you define total depravity in the biblical context? Sure. So it, the, the total aspect is, is extensive. So it means that every aspect of uh, ourselves as persons are tainted by the fall. So that includes not just the body, but also the soul. And within the soul, it's our ability to reason as well as our ability to choose our emotions or desires. So every single aspect is tainted by some amount of sin because of the fall. And it would pe where people always go with the total. Well, total means that you're just as evil as possible. You're just running around trying to like, you know, basically kill everybody. But no, it's not utter depravity where you, you're as bad as possible all the time. It's that every aspect is tainted by the fall. And that means when somebody is an unbeliever, un unregenerate, that every action that they perform is tainted by a certain amount of sin. Now, it might be a relatively good act. So let's say, for example, an unbeliever might be honest on their taxes, whereas a Christian cheats on their taxes. Okay, so in that sense, the unbeliever is, is better, but they're not doing it for the right motivations, they're not doing it out of love of God, submission to God's authority, to his commands. They're not doing it for the glory of God, like in 1 Corinthians 11, we're told to do everything for the glory of God. So because their their motives are tainted in it, even when they're doing their very best stuff, and it can even be better than the Christian next to them, they're still tainted by a certain amount of sin. And so that's the, you know, one aspect is every, everything that the unregenerate unbeliever does is tainted by sin. But the second aspect of it is an inability to believe the gospel without God's help, without prevenient grace. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into the exact definition of prevenient grace, but, um, you know, in, in essence, God has to initiate, and it's a supernatural work of, in, in his part, and it's a current work, something that the Holy Spirit is doing in a person's heart to enable them to believe the gospel. So I think that's that's probably it in a nutshell. Now, where I might disagree with Calvinists is going to be on the issue of, well, does regeneration precede faith or does faith precede regeneration? Um, but in, in essence, I think we Calvinists and Arminians mostly agree on the problem of the total depravity due to the fall. Where, what we disagree on is the solution. Mm -hmm. Is it an irresistible work that God does that just effectually converts a person, or is it a resistible grace? So it's it's where we differ is in the solution to total depravity, but we don't necessarily disagree on the extent of depravity. Fair enough, fair enough. So instead of like different definitions for T, it would be more so like you said in the solution, whereas, you know, in the TULIP model, it would be the I that you disagree with, right? The irresistible grace versus prevenient grace. All right, fair enough. Dale, what do you think about this before we jump into it? Do you affirm total depravity or how do you see, uh, what do you see the Bible teaching whenever it comes to the subject? Okay. Yeah. Well, I was, I was just going to ask, ask Dan a, a quick follow-up question there because about uh, when it, in terms of the extent of total depravity so i get that the scope of it it covers all of our faculties i personally would agree with that as well 
Um, and obviously total depravity isn't saying like, well, every unbeliever is contam depraved to the fullest extent. Do you see that there are degrees for individuals to the level that they're, there are different levels that people are depraved, I guess, like, um, is one person more depraved than another? Yeah, a hundred percent. I agree with you. I mean, that's what we experience every day, right? So some people are, um, you know, I guess more, I guess, heinous in their, their wickedness and they, they have character, right? And so you can kind of start making an assessment of a person's character. And some people also develop um, habits and patterns in their life. So all those things that can be in various different degrees. So I guess once, once you take off the table, we can't be perfect. We can't perfectly obey God's commands. All right. But underneath perfection, well, there's probably there's this wide variety of where people fit on the spectrum of how um, sinful or uh, wicked they, they can be. So, yes, there, there's going to be differences and there's going to be differences due to character as well as um, uh, self uh, self forming of habits and, and those those sorts of things. So all of that's true. So, um, yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and, and if you think about it, like you can you in the context of, let's say, obeying. U, U.S. law, for example, there you can run a whole system of a government for totally depraved people because we're not talking about utter depravity where everyone is just trying to murder all the time. So, you know, th there's a lot of practical ways in which the degrees of goodness and badness of actions matter. But what's off the table is perfection. We cannot perf perfectly obey God's commands. Gotcha. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from for the most part, right? I definitely agree that we are born with this uh, sinful disposition, or I, sometimes I call it the sin disease and that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that would translate to original sin. I don't know if we're born guilty or not. Um, I'm open to either, either way. Um, but yeah, I think that people are, are born with this sinful disposition or sinful nature and they're affected by it. All of their faculties are affected by, by that to varying degrees and that sort of thing. And in a soteriological context, I believe verses that say, look, we, without the enablement or help of the Holy Spirit, no one can come to God. I, th I think that that's just, you have to affirm that that's what the Bible says. So, yeah. Right on. And this is deep, I think, too. You know, in Judaism, we see, especially in Second Temple Judaism, we see this inclination to sin uh, over and over and over again that really, you know, starts. It seems like it starts with Adam, but after doing some more research in it, it's really hit on with Cain, right? It seems like all the Second Temple Jewish texts that I've uh, really investigated put this stamp on Cain like he's the serpent seed, right? And so, but uh, Dan, I just want to thank you uh, for, for, you know, coming on with us, reviewing this debate. So for those who are interested, we are going to have your interlocutor on next week, uh, Wednesday at 7 p.m. We're doing the same discussion, uh, but instead of Dan, we're going to have Warren uh, McGrew on uh, to get his side of the debate. And uh, so I think it'll be a really well-rounded well discussion uh, on both sides. But Dan, again, I want to thank you uh, for coming on today. Uh, for our audience, if you haven't subscribed, uh, feel free to subscribe to Faith Unaltered as well as Real Seekers. Uh, we broadcast these on different platforms. So we've got the Complete Sinner's Guide, uh, Faith Unaltered that you're watching on now, and Real Seekers that you could be watching on now. And so feel free to subscribe to all those channels. And also check out, uh, so I've been getting better at uploading uh, our videos, well, audio, 
to a podcasting platform. So Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, everywhere where you can get your podcast, you can download the audio for free um, by searching Faith Unaltered on all your favorite podcasting platforms. So Dan, let me pull this video up and we'll jump right into it. Um, if you, just a quick, I don't know if I, am I host or am I guest in this? What's my role? If what do you want to be, Dale? What do you want to be today? It's whatever, whatever is good for you. I'll leave it for I, you to choose, if, sir, freely. I, okay, so if I'm doing the co-hosting thing, I just wanted to quickly, like in a couple minutes, uh, because I know you're joining Orthodoxy. So, like, what's what's your take on the total depravity thing, if you don't mind? Just so, so, yeah, to be honest, man, I that's a good question, Dale. And so, after listening to this debate, because it's been a while since I've studied it, I would, I think at this point in my journey, and granted I'm two months in, I think I would have a difficult time uh, arguing with Dan, right? And so where I do see some of the things that, you know, Dan brought up, I'm just sitting here cheering you on, brother, like, yes, yes. So I guess this is some of my Calvinistic tendencies kind of coming back because I haven't studied this per se from the Orthodox perspective. Where I do know the big difference is, is between the East concept of ancestral sin, kind of like the sickness, uh, the consequence version that you were talking about of what happened after the fall, like death is a consequence versus a uh, punitive, um, I guess, a punitive consequence, right? This this penalty uh, that we get uh, whenever, you know, imputed guilt, uh, things like that. So whereas uh, and, you know, most Calvinists and Dan, correct me if I'm wrong, but you would uh, hold to like an imputed or imputed guilt whenever it comes to original sin. Is that fair? I, I personally do, but yeah. most Arminians don't. Yeah, but right. I personally do. But at the same time, I think what you're going to find is um, the issue of total depravity is more related to the second aspect, the concupiscence, the inclination to sin. Mm -hmm. So, and I believe the Eastern Orthodox Church for the most part affirms that, although perhaps not completely. But what you'll find is um, in the, um, in the, um, the, do we, is the Council of Jerusalem, the 1672 one, yep. they, they do affirm the necessity of provenient grace uh, in the East. And it's not, near as well defined as it is within either Roman Catholicism or Arminianism or Calvinism, but it is there. Mm -hmm. um, so there is there is some type of necessity of provenient grace because of the fall um, within the Eastern Church. That's what I, you know, had kind of seen is that there's, seems to be, you know, and I'd have to dive deeper into this, but a lot of uh, similarities between Eastern Orthodoxy and Arminianism, uh, maybe not, like you said, you know, as well as defined, as, as Arminianism, Calvinism, you know, Roman Catholicism is, uh, but there are similarities between the two. And so I think that that um, makes a makes a good deal of difference. But uh, Dale, to answer your question more, uh, more fully, like, let me dive into that a little bit more and I can give you a better answer. Fair enough. Absolutely. Cool. Okay. All right. And so Jordan, uh, yes, uh, he asked if we, if they, our audience could ask questions to Dan while we're going through this. And Dan, if you don't have a problem with that, I don't have a problem with that. So we can take audience questions uh, throughout this. So, all right, let's jump in to the first timestamp that I've got. And it's at the 850 mark, and we will just play it from there. Fully explains the language that we find in scripture of illumination, drawing, and conviction, and other things. Now, uh, Warren and Dr. Flowers responded, and they responded 
with a, they posited a hypothetical. This is not their actual view, but it was a hypothetical to clarify their view. And what they said is, if the Bible were lost for a thousand years, and then let's say that the deist view of God is true, and God starts the ball rolling uh, and then took off, and let's say that there's a Bible and a Quran on the shelf, and assuming this deistic worldview where God doesn't exist anymore and there's no Holy Spirit moving, the Bible is still believable. That is what I object to, and that is, to me, the clearest point of contention that I can find in the um, voluminous uh, disagreements that have been had. But let's get into my... All right, so Dan, give me a little background here. Um, so bring us up to speed on the details of the point of contention and why you disagree here uh, with Warren and Dr. Flowers. Well, the primary reason I disagree with them is the exegetical points on the work of the Holy Spirit that he's doing now currently in the lives of unbelievers to bring them to faith, right? The, we witness, but God gives the increase, right? But more importantly, that the best witness is not us as humans, it's the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit is the one that's witnessing in John 15, 26. And he's convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment because they don't believe in him. So to say that the Holy Spirit could be you know, on vacation, and all we need is the Bible. And it, it does not make sense. It 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 doesn't make sense to the text that uh, talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing and what we need Him to be doing. So that's the primary thing. Now, to to go back to a broader background, um, in, within the Southern Baptist Church, there was the traditional Baptist statement that came out, and it was ambiguous as to what type of grace we needed to be able to believe the gospel, and it it looked like it either could be read in a way that was in compliance with, um, you know, some of the previous, like, let's say, for example, um, the Council of Carthage or the Council of Orange. So someone could to take could take that traditional Baptist statement and read it in a way that fully fits those earlier councils that talk about God's grace or not. They could reject those councils and um, and still affirm the traditional Baptist statement. So it was ambiguous at the time. And what you found is people, like, uh, obviously Calvinists pushed back on the statement, but Arminians also, like Dr. Roger Olson did, and said, wow, this is really loose language. Hmm. And then they came out, uh, traditional Baptists came out with a book. Um, uh, it's called Anyone Can Be Saved, published in uh, uh, 2016. And it's a, it was a bunch of Baptist authors uh, defending and defining the statement. And what you found in the book is, Two of them were more Arminian. They, it sounded like provenient grace, but one of the, at least one of the authors was not and rejected the Arminian position of a necessity of a supernatural current provenient work of grace to be able to believe the gospel and was saying that the gospel alone is sufficient. Mm. So it, it initially, Leighton Flowers, who's the uh, head of provisionism, he joined the uh, Society of Evangelical Arminians. Um, now he, but I think a lot of people within the group saw that, oh, his overall orientation is very different. We're glad that we're united against Calvinism, but there's something weird here. And then eventually he, um, started uh, debating in, in, in house and, um, eventually, uh, Leighton left the group because, he, he felt that even though he could affirm the wording in the statement of faith, that he was outside the ethos of the statement of faith. Maybe it's the way he would put it. Okay. Um, but we, we uh, kind of parted ways, and then he's 
he's doing his own thing uh, now defined as provisionism. So that there is a there is some fundamental difference, and it does boil down to what is the Holy Spirit doing today? Right. That's right. that's the key question. Right, and that's kind of what I noticed, and I don't want to misrepresent anybody, but I think we'll see this as we get into this discussion uh, between you and uh, Warren. It seems like the provisionists would say that, no, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, right? And I know that you had answered Warren uh, whenever it comes to that. Like I said, we'll see that here in just a second. But would that be an accurate you know, statement that the gospel for the provisionist is what the only thing that's needed— um, and I don't want to say to convert the person or anything like that, but but how would how would they word it? Um, and maybe I'll ask Warren this on on the episode that we do with him. But but go sure. ahead, Dan. Sure. So the way Leighton and Warren described it in that that one program was hypothetical deism. So that scripture is inspired, and then the scripture is lost for a thousand years, and God puts deism in place. He backs away. They literally said God is gone, and that the Holy Spirit is doing nothing in the world. And if someone discovers that Bible, while deism is in place, they can read the Bible, believe it, trust it, and be saved. And so, so now you, for the for the sake of clarity, that's not that their position. So what that means is all the work that the Holy Spirit is doing today is helpful, but not necessary. But not necessary. Gotcha. Be, right. So I, I think that that's about as clear as as they could get. I think. I mean. Maybe it could be more clear. Maybe it could be more clear. But that I think that that focuses in where I'm saying, where Armenians say, what the Holy Spirit is doing today is absolutely necessary. We need it. We need the Holy Spirit's help because we're fallen sinners. Right, Dale. Any follow up? Yeah, it's so it's it's an interesting question because in the quote it was even saying like, oh, you know, under deism, assuming God doesn't even exist today and stuff like that. So it's. What I think of is kind of uh, the different mechanisms, right? So, like, maybe they're thinking of some kind of weird thing where it's like, oh, well, God in the beginning, he created us with faculties which would respond to these propositions in the gospel message and that alone. So whether God even exists or not, we've been designed to respond in this way. But um, I don't think that's how it works. I think that the way it's it's a more of a testimonial model where the spirit testifies to our in our spirit. So it is, it is playing this necessary, crucial role, right? That now it works through the preaching of the gospel. The Bible tells us that, right? The essential gospel message. But again, you need that Holy Spirit to play that, that essential element and to testify to the truth of that. Cause I mean, I'm sorry, we've preached to atheists. They've got the propositions that that's not going to do it alone. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Yeah. So and I'm not calling anyone a Pelagian, but so Pelagius said, you know, hey, look, God created us with the free will to be able to respond, right? So even Pelagius would have said it's an act of God's grace through creation. And the, res the response from the Council of Carthage and then later in the Council of Orange is, no, it's a supernatural work, a supernatural provenient work of grace that enables us out of our fallen state. So in essence, once they defined the term grace, they said, hey, grace is not God creating us with free will. Grace is not Christ is a good example for us. Grace is not we're being taught, you know, uh, the law and the gospel, but rather grace is a special supernatural work to enable us to to help us out of our fallen condition. So once Orange and, and Carthage define those, um, I guess that's that's 
that's where the uh, the rubber meets the road. And what it boils down to is when you come across passages that talk about our uh, the illumination, the drawing, the conviction, the calling, all those things. Are those can those all be satisfied with just well the the gospel was inspired, right? I mean, so there's your drawing, illumination, calling, conviction, or is there some some work that the Holy Spirit is doing today in people's hearts um, that is necessary because we're fallen. Right. So how, just out of a quick question then, because I, um, so I'm on like prov the provision, provisionism under God questions, right? And it does, under that description, it does say they do acknowledge that it's through the power of the Holy Spirit to enable a response. So they, it does seem to be saying that they do believe it's necessary. So like, whoa, I don't know, like, where are we getting the idea that they deny that? From from, from the, the hypothetical deism quote, I mean, but not not just there, but but the, 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 to be honest, okay, so that's a good question, though. That's very fair, because I would say that 98% of what provisionists say, I, I agree with, but I, I think I'm understanding it through an Arminian lens. But the other 2% that's objectionable, like this hypothetical deism example, helps me understand the rest of their statements. So when they say it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, what they mean is, usually what they mean is that the Holy Spirit inspired scriptures. And that's oh. it. Right. So the supernatural work is done in Paul's life, not in the person that's reading Paul's life. From for once once it's inspired and written down, then that's all we need is the book. Gotcha. Cool. Thanks. Right on. Yeah. So Jordan asked, um, so is your problem with this whole overall um, thing that you're talking about, Dan, is it exegetical or is it something else? Exegetical. I mean, yeah. yeah so we, I mean, we, uh, hopefully we'll get into texts like John six and First Corinthians twelve and First um, Second Corinthians four to th uh, three through four. There, there's plenty of, of texts that, that get right right to the, the meat of it, but yeah, it's definitely exegetically based. Okay, right on, right on. All righty, so let's go on to the next timestamp here then. And again, it, uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you've got questions for Dan, feel free uh, to put them in uh, the comments if you would uh make sure to either put question for dan at the front or at faith unaltered uh so i don't accidentally skip over it um and we will get to your question also this would be a good time to remind our audience if you would like to support uh faith unaltered um now you can't do this on real seekers but dale is really close so if you haven't subs subscribed to real seekers yet get over there and subscribe because dale i think you're what 20 people away from a thousand uh, subscribers on youtube i think it's 980 right. now at least uh, yeah it's, it's somewhere around there like i i don't know the exact number i haven't checked it but. it's close it's really really close and so um if you uh would like to support you so you can do this on faith and altered you can give us a super chat um ask your question or send us a super sticker um and we will if you do send a super chat we will get to your question as soon as it pops up and so with that being said, let me share my screen again, and I've already got the next uh, timestamp pulled up. Information or lack of opportunity. In John 6.40, there's a plain statement of the gospel, as plain as John 3.16. Christ said to his audience, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. The gospel is right in their faces, and they still can't believe. 
Also, Christ says that the flesh profits nothing, and his words are spirit and life. And Peter says that Christ has the words of eternal life. So again, the issue is not a lack of information. The Father's drawing is invisible, as we can see from verse 40, 46. And it overcomes our flesh and um, our inability to trust in Christ. All right. So, first of all, Dan, I just want to ask you this. Is it weird hearing yourself? <laughs> it's always weird hearing myself yeah i don't i don't like my voice i guess <laughs> i was that way too whenever i was uh first got into podcasting and youtube like i'd go back and listen to uh the episodes i'm like oh god no wonder people ain't watching this but uh all right so you referenced multiple times in that uh little section a human's inability to trust christ right so can you help break down why drawing would be a necessary element since prevenient grace is already given to humans, therefore enabling them to believe, or is calling, drawing, things like that, both aspects of prevenient grace? So, good question. So, the reason why I, drawing is necessary is it says, no man can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. So, the, it's absolutely necessary that the Father draws. So, I think the question... The, the point of contention on this specific text with the provisionist is, is the presentation of the gospel alone all the drawing that we need? So if, if the Father inspires the, the, uh, the Bible, uh, the gospel, is that, all, is that all we need? And the answer to that question is no, it's not, because Christ right there was preaching the gospel very clearly as it existed at that time, understand that this is pre-resurrection, but he's off, Christ is offering himself for salvation there in 640. It's like, um, you know, he basically is saying, he, he is saying, whoever believes in me will never perish. And uh, Peter later says, you have the words of eternal life. And um, if you look at six, oh, here, I'll read these, the, these this, this passage. So this is in chapter six in verse 64 and 65. So he says, but there are some of you who don't believe for Jesus knew from the beginning who would not believe and who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can, uh, can come to me unless it's granted to him by my father. But there's a piece in parenthesis. Let me, not that you should do this, but for the sake of clarity, let me, let me omit the parenthesis so you can see Jesus's point. But there are some of you who do not believe this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Jesus is explaining why some people do not believe the gospel. He's providing the explanation. What is the reason? Because it's not been, they are not being drawn, at least at that moment. Now, I, I think it's fair to say, you know, especially as an Arminian, I think that the, the Father is drawing people. Some people resist that drawing, stop the drawing, block the drawing. All that stuff is, is fine. But without the drawing, no one's going to believe in Christ. And the drawing is not the presentation of the gospel alone, because the lack of drawing explains why people reject the gospel. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know if that was clear. If it wasn't, let me know, and I'll try to clarify it. Yeah, I think so, personally, and then, Dell, I'll get your uh, input on this as well. And I like, because so we're going to uh, get into your tow truck analogy uh, with Warren that you brought up during this debate. But it seems like at this point, right, if the Father is drawing, actively drawing, then this would imply an active 
action is that is that the right word um but an action on the father's behalf but i could see where you know the provisionist would say right inspiring the scripture this is where god was active in his drawing whenever a human you know after the fact reads the scripture this is where this drawing takes place is that is that fair dan yeah, that, that's that's true. It's certainly drawing is an action on the father's part, but the also the word drawing also always is accompanied with an action of the thing that's drawn. Right. And so, that, so in, in this case, so in a physical object, the object is moving. If the object isn't moving, it's not being drawn. It may be pulled on, right? So, like if you know, if I pull on the Eiffel Tower, it's not going anywhere. But I'm not drawing the Eiffel Tower, right? So, but if if I'm moving. So I'm moving my cell phone. So I'm drawing my cell phone right now. Yeah. So now that's that's a physical illustration. But if if I'm pulling on my cell phone, but it's not going anywhere, I'm not actually drawing it. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the point. Now, um, so what that implies is not just an action on God's part, but it's not just a one-time past action. It's an ongoing thing throughout the process of conversion that the Father's moving us to uh, through conversion uh, from unbelief to belief in Christ. Now, as an Arminian, like I said, I think that process is resistible. We can choose not to consent and we can we can resist and, and stop the Father from drawing us, mm -hmm. but um, we can't believe in Christ without the Father drawing us. Right. And I think you made uh, a good distinction uh, in the debate with Warren, like I said, we'll see that here in just a second. But with attempts to draw and actual drawing, drawing dictates that movement on the thing being drawn, right, is necessary, right? This is a necessary component of drawing versus an attempt to draw. If you draw, then the thing that you are drawing is coming towards you. Fair? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And you know, I, th I think in, in the debate, I don't, um, so maybe Warren and I weren't on the same page. I, th I think um, Warren and Leighton probably now uh, do understand. They probably agree with that. I don't think they, they, they uh, the full implication of the father's ongoing current action is, is there in, in their view. But I think that, I think the, the bigger point of contention is, well, is just the presentation of the gospel um, sufficient you know, is, is that all that's necessary for the drawing to be? But like I said, the explanation of why some people don't believe is that they're, you know, um, why why don't people believe the gospel? Because the Father isn't drawing them. That's that's what Christ is, is up to. So that m makes it very clear to me that the drawing is something over and above just the presentation of the gospel. Right on. Dale? Yeah, so I, I I used to kind of conflate uh, prevenient grace with the drawing type deal, right? Um, I thought that was God was drawing, and then we respond. I have my real seeker criteria. What what do we need to the conditions we need to be meet? You know, we need to be a real seeker. Basically, we on our part we freely choose to actively seek God, do our best to seek Him out and stuff enabled by the Holy Spirit, right, through his grace and that sort of thing, and be willing to obey if that ever came up. Uh, but listening to Dan, I, I could also see it because I was a real seeker, but it took eight years, right? So why why wasn't I a believer on day one uh, during my searching and stuff? So that could fit into what Dan is saying. Okay, well, you know, on May 5th, 2018, that's when God chose to draw you kind of thing. You 
through the Holy Spirit's enablement, you were a real seeker. But then uh, eight years later, then he drew you and you became an, a believer and, and the truth was revealed or something. So maybe that that kind of thing makes sense and could work. So, yeah, I need to think about that. Yeah, I mean, as long as we keep it like that God initiates the process and we're not able to do it on our own, of our own strength, you know, uh, I think we're we're on the same page. You know, the thing that I'm thinking about, and I'm, I'm, I want to ask Warren about this whenever he comes on, but to me anyway, since we are temporal creatures, right, it would make sense to say, you know, if God is drawing us now, then he wasn't drawing us before we existed, right, at the time the scriptures were written. And so, but given, and, and like I said, this is where I'd have to get Warren's opinion, you know, is God timeless? Is God, you know, does God transcend uh, space time and is you know he like in this eternal now thing uh so i think we'll get into that but you know that would be the only way it would seem like they could, could they could affirm that god is actually drawing us now through the scriptures is if they affirm this eternal timelessness or eternal now perspective uh that god is in Th does that make sense um you know i think warren so we didn't get into this in the debate. He, uh, right. Warren is uh, on the dynamic omniscience, which right. I mean, I call it open theism, but he doesn't call it that. But uh, it's, uh, yeah. So I, th I think he, well, I'll leave him to address that. I suspect he won't go the internal now route. I'm pretty sure that he would disagree with that approach. Okay. But, um, but that wasn't the focus in this specific debate. Right. Um, but I can, I can imagine that there's a lot of, interconnectedness and like everything kind of fits together in, in his his worldview so I, I just i just have an issue with how how is god drawing us now if he's not actively drawing us now but but i'll leave that for warren to answer but all right let's go on to the next timestamp. so this is at the 2005 mark uh i've got it started a little bit before this on the uh on the live stream here or, or this uh, on youtube uh, but it's at the 1956 mark. I couldn't get it at the 2005. So we'll, we'll start about 10 seconds before that. Satan's veiling the gospel is not in our flesh, but rather God, who spoke the world into existence, must speak into our hearts. Okay, next let's talk about passages that uh, specifically talk about prevenient grace. God's prevenient grace frees us to believe. He opens our hearts to believe and makes us want to know him. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, showing us the need for a savior. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is an additional work above and beyond the inspiration of scripture. The Holy Spirit convicts us of Christ's righteousness and testifies of Christ. God gives us repentance and faith, which means he enables those under the snare of the devil to repent and believe. While we minister by sharing the gospel, which is like planting seeds, God causes the growth or uh, causes a person to respond in faith. The scriptures are sufficient as an instrument in God's hand for us to be able to respond in faith. Provenient grace is a supernatural current work of the Holy Spirit in a person's heart to enable them to trust Christ and then to obey his commands. All right. So let me remove that. Okay. So at the beginning of this section, uh, Dan, you said, quote, he opens our hearts and makes us want to know him. Is this an effect of provenient grace that impacts people in various degrees, depending on the, the individual, i.e. How, how open they are to receiving the truth or how hard their hearts have become? Uh, so I'll let you answer that and then I'll answer or then I'll ask the uh, the next portion of that question. 
Yeah, I mean, I can imagine that it's different for each person. I mean, to I think to some extent, everyone has a baseline that where they they just need God's help. So the the, the two passages that are obviously in mind there are the Acts uh, sixteen fourteen. So there's Lydia; she was the first convert in in Europe in Macedonia, mm-hmm. I believe. So Paul goes; he pe- preaches to them. She hears Paul. Then it, the the verb is just like she's hearing Paul. Then mm-hmm. God opens her heart, so that implies to me that it was previously closed. God opens her heart to pay attention to the things Paul said, and then all of a sudden, then she's a becomes a Christian. She believes. So Warren's response on that was, "Well, she was a God fear. Okay, she was a God fear. So was Cornelius, but Cornelius was given the words whereby he must be saved, so, um, and also at um, in Acts thirteen fifty. The God-fearers at that time um, basically hear Paul and Barnabas, and many of the God-fearers do not believe uh, the gospel at that time. So just because someone's a God-fearer doesn't mean that they're saved. And um, and then even, even if, for the sake of discussion, we say, okay, well, Lydia was already saved, which I think is weird. But let's say we say for the sake of discussion, Lydia was already saved. Well, if a saved person needs the God to open up their heart, how much more so an unregenerate unbeliever needs the Holy Spirit to open up their heart. So there's that. And, and then the other passage is that Jeremiah 24, 7, uh, he puts in our hearts to want to know him. So, and I, that just reminds me of what you said, Dale, um, as a real seeker. So let me put it this way, you know, like I don't want to go eat mud out of my backyard right like <laughs> there's nothing in me that wants to do. for some reason you wanted to seek right and i think that was from god now um now it doesn't mean that you're determined to 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 believe in god it's just now that you have that desire to know who god is that he's put there into your heart um that's an option for you to um to explore so i i mean that, that's that's kind of the way i i look at that you know, Dan, what you just said, it reminds me of my own personal testimony, right? I was not reading the scriptures whenever I started seeking God, right? To be honest, I didn't know what Bible translation to use, to be perfectly honest. But at the beginning, right, I, and, and for anybody that's ever heard my testimony before, I hated God. I, I wanted absolutely nothing to do with God, even after growing up in a, you know, church. We went to church on Sundays, but we were not by any stretch of the definition Christian, right? It, church on Sundays and that was it. Right. And so before I actually started, you know, seeking God and I've told Dell this story before, you know, there was something, something, and I still attribute this to the Holy spirit today. And so this is what I was talking about, you know, a little earlier, like I see this, this connection between the Holy spirit and myself, right. Actively right now, Jesus, or even back then, right. But Jesus was drawing me. God was draw, drawing me, working in my heart and leading me to him even before I started investigating the claims that scripture made, right? It was, it was wild. So, um, and and I think, you know, I've talked to a lot of people that have that same, you know, the same thing that happened uh, to them. If they haven't been a Christian all of their life, if they were in a state of rebellion, then at some point that switched, right? And I think it was before, I mean, for me, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, it was before I actually even opened up a Bible and started basically it was through uh whenever the gentleman who led me to the lord uh he presented the gospel to me right and and in that working you know in the in the hearing of the gospel and i think in the uh, activity of the holy spirit 
uh, who was working in my heart. I think that's what led me to the scripture, and that's what led me to an even deeper relationship uh, with God. But Dale, uh, what do you think? Uh, so, and sorry, just about what specifically are we? Because oh, just if you had any questions for Dan about that segment, if not, um, I was going to move on. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anything. Um, I just like how he tied it into the real seeker thing and about what you guys are saying about how God kind of initiates it by implanting that desire, and then we have libertarian free will. Sorry, Tyler Vela. I know he's in the comments, but um, he distracted uh, yeah, we, you, didn't he? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we have libertarian free will to to orient our wills, as yeah. Tamar Shapiro would say, towards really seeking out God and that sort of thing. So that's just the way I would phrase it kind of thing. Yeah. Right on. We did have an audience question. I'm not even going to try to pronounce this name because I will butcher it. Uh, but uh, they say in Dan's view under this hypothetical deism. So going back to our first uh, timestamp, uh, if the Bible was false, would it then be believable? Okay. So let's not qu equivocate on the word believable. So let me mm -hmm. make sure I understand, uh, explain this. So it's not that, um, you know, when an unbeliever reads the Bible, it's like reading Chinese and they don't speak Chinese. Like I don't speak Chinese. So, so it's not, it's not like that. So on the other hand, what, what happens is it's not an integrated worldview. They don't fully understand it, but also um, the biggest issue is not intellectual. It is moral, mm -hmm. right? So they don't think it's good. That's the problem. They don't, um, they don't want to be united to Christ and faith. They don't want to repent of their sins. And that, so that's the, the whole thing. So if by believable, you mean, can they understand the intellectual propositions of the gospel? You know, well, you know, Christ died in Jerusalem, was buried and rose again from the third day. They can understand those claims. They just don't think that they want to, well, they, they don't want to trust Christ based on what he's done for us on the cross. They're not, they don't want to turn their future over to him and just trust him and say, Lord, please save me. So that in that sense, it's not believable. So now if the Bible were false, um, yeah. So they, at that point, Satan wants you to believe it, right? And yeah, so you know, you, you might rely on the wrong things. So that, that there, there's a sense in which that's true. So any, anyways, hopefully, hopefully I made the point that it's more of a, um, of a moral problem more than an intellectual problem. So right on. anyways. Right on, right on. All right, let's go on to our next timestamp. And so this is part, so we're done at this point. We're done with your opening statement. We're getting into Warren's opening statement. And there was a ch the challenge that he laid out, what you had to do to uh, win this debate, right? Um, and I wanted to get your opinion on this, whether or not, uh, this was an accurate assessment of what indeed you needed to do to win this debate. So let's hear uh, from Warren. I'll share my screen and we'll play it. Tonight we're debating if total depravity accurately reflects man's ontology and the problem of sin as revealed in Scripture. Now, to defend his position tonight that total depravity is biblical, Dan will need to accomplish two things. One, he will need to provide passages in Scripture where total depravity's unique distinctives are clearly and explicitly stated. Now, as there is no such passage in all of Scripture where total depravity's unique distinctives are clearly and explicitly stated, 
Dan must rely heavily on a second line of defense tonight. And that is point two. He will need to provide various passages, which despite lacking such explicit language, can potentially still be used to support the unique distinctives of total depravity. All right. So, Dan, do you think this was an accurate assessment of the proofs needed to establish your view? If not, why? I think it's fair. I mean, okay. to, to be honest, the second claim, I, I, I fear what's hap what happened in the discussion was sort of like this atomization of each verse. So, you know, I don't think there is any one verse that teaches all of total depravity. It is gathered from a multitude of verses and put together like we do mm -hmm. with the Trinity and that sort mm -hmm. of thing. But where, but I do think the core aspect of total depravity that was in contention that night was the inability to believe the gospel. And there, yeah, I do think that's exactly what John 6 is teaching. That's exactly what 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is teaching. That's exactly what 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4 are teaching, is teaching. And, you know, it's so from that standpoint, we have texts where the gospel is clearly being presented and people are unable to obey it. Now, what you don't have in those specific texts is, okay, well, how does that relate to Adam's sin? What is the transmission of Adam's sin to our, you know, to our state of inability? Also, what you don't have, well, let's say for the sake of discussion, you know, someone accepts, okay, so somebody can't believe the gospel. That doesn't mean you need the gospel. Maybe you can just be perfect on your own, right? And then you don't, you know, what, what, is, what, do, what do I need the gospel for? So now you've got another concept you got to bring in, which is concupiscence and this inclination to sin. And there again, how does that tie to Adam's fall? So you do need bunches of different scriptures to get the entire picture end to end. But I think the core claim of that inability to believe the gospel can be shown even from just a single uh, few, just a few texts of, of scripture and should be accepted just on that basis. But I think the, the, the systematization of bunches of different passages gives you an end-to-end -end picture um, where we're where you get the full-orbed doctrine of total depravity. Right, and I think if correct me if I'm wrong, but this was either an audience question at the end, or Warren asked you this during his cross-exam portion while he was questioning you. But if there was one verse that you would uh, show that you would start with anyway. Uh, that was John six forty four, wasn't it, Dan? It was, yeah. But I mean, so I, I could have. So the reverse question would be: Well, what one passage teaches the Trinity, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but but at the same time, um, I I do think that it's you know in in it's fair for him to look for where's this one punch knockout coming from. I think it, I probably should have conceded. Hey, look, there's not one passage that teaches everything that there is to know about total depravity, but it's in. 15 passages and and we just organize them together but at, at the same time um the john 6 1 corinthians 12 uh, 3 and 2 corinthians 4 3 through 4 directly hit on the key point of an inability to believe the gospel without yeah. previant grace yeah no i think first corinthians so um for those who watch the show regularly right they know i'm in greek and that was one of the passages in mount's workbook uh, was about if anyone, uh, by speaking by the Spirit, right, calls Christ uh, Lord. Uh, they can't do that, right? There's an inability to do that without the Holy Spirit working through you. 
And so I thought that that was, you know, John 6, 44, whenever I was a Calvinist, John 6, 44 and first Corinthians, what is it? 12, four, I think. Right. Um, 12, three. Yeah. 12, three. Uh, those were the two passages that I would lean heavily on and start out. But I think you're right, Dan, you know, in, in that's, I think that's fair with all of, you know, and I know Warren's not a Calvinist, but with all of even Tulip, right? You have to have multiple verses and and to back these claims up, uh, not only to strengthen the argument, right? But you're right. I don't think there is a one punch knockout for any of them, just like there's not a one punch knockout for for the Trinity. First uh, John five seven uh, would be nice if it was in our oldest manuscripts, but not so much, right? And so, um, but I I don't know. I don't know. I've he- I've heard uh, it both ways on that. Uh, but Dell, anything from you before we uh, move on? Um, yeah, I guess so in terms of it, I think you guys are spot on in terms of the fact that, yeah, I mean, it, it is really not fair to demand, oh, you need one verse that, that captures all the aspects of any one doctrine. I mean, we have that, we don't have that for lots of things, including the Trinity, that sort of thing. Um, one thing I would also say is, um, it's not even the case that everything needs to be explicitly said in scripture in terms of doctrines. Again, even looking at the Trinity, there are aspects that aren't explicitly said in scripture, I would argue, and but they are logically entailed from what we know in scripture. And that is also a valid thing. So if there are certain aspects um, to the total depravity doctrine, then that you could argue are logically entailed or implied that would be just as valid as well. Uh, now that said, I, I would think I would disagree. I don't agree with the original sin doctrine per se. I, I think that we acquire a sin nature, not guilt for Adam's sin. I, I don't believe that. I am open. It may sound weird, but um, it, it, it. I'm a metaphysical Aristotelian in terms of dualism, substance dualism, and how it works and stuff. I think it could be a possibility that maybe we are born sinners because it's a sin for us to freely choose to acquire the sin nature uh, at the moment of conception or something. I I know that's a bit of a weird view, but um, that could make sense if there are verses or something that you think we're all born sinners, literally like guilty or something like that. That's a way to reconcile it. But I don't think that we're guilty for Adam's sin. No, he is guilty for that and stuff like that so yeah right so again i think most arminians would actually agree with you dale and um it's going to come down to what is the proper exegesis of romans chapter 5 12 through 21 mm-hmm. and but either way like um i think adam harwood has actually made one of the better cases in your favor dale right where but he's still saying yeah we're definitely getting this inclination to sin and everyone sins instant you know when they have an opportunity to sin because of that inclination to sin and that's how it works because in some sense we fell in adam but he would put an immediate step in there where we get we because of adam we get a, a nature inclined to sin and then we actually sin and then we're condemned so either way, everybody ends up condemned. So I think you end up in the same spot. Um, and the only explanation of that passage that avoids that is saying we don't have to sin. We don't have to imitate Adam. And all it is is a kind of this bad example and bad influence on us from Adam that we don't have to follow. That's an extreme 
uh, interpretation, and I don't think one that uh, frankly survives the exegesis of that text. But if 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 your if your hesitation is on the original guilt side, there's a lot. Yeah, you're you have a lot of company. I personally think that five eighteen Romans five eighteen is teaching that, but uh, you know that's just me just trying to understand that passage as best I can. You know, Dan, you brought up Romans 5, and this kind of just came uh, to, to my thoughts. So I want to get your opinion on this. But even so, me studying Eastern Orthodoxy now, there's a quite a few, more than one book that has brought up uh, Augustine's um, misinterpretation of Romans 5.12 whenever it comes to the um, this doctrine. And so my question is, given what we've said about not building your case and not having uh, a one verse knockout, right? That that this that your whole system kind of, or well, whenever it comes to total depravity, that this lies on. I don't, to be honest, I don't find that a very good argument, right? Um, given that it's not dealing with the other text that uh, people that affirm total depravity, like yourself, like Calvinists, uh, they bring up, it's not dealing with those texts. It's dealing with one text. Uh, but I wanted to get your opinion on that, on that, Dan. Is that a good argument or uh, are there better ways to go about if you don't hold to total depravity, uh, showing that from Scripture? So total depravity and inclination to sin can be showed from other passages, even if there were no Romans chapter 5. Yeah. So that I think that, that much is clear. So the inclination to sin can be established other places. I don't know that... So there are other passages people look at for, I guess, what you would call original guilt. You know, some people look at uh, we're born by nature to the children of wrath from Ephesians three or Ephesians two. Some people might look at um, um, I was conceived in iniquity from Psalms fifty one, but I don't think I don't think it, too many people would come to that conclusion if it was not for Romans five. So I think the the question of original guilt probably does in large part depend on Romans 5 on and in terms of depravity the sin nature the things that are frankly more uh, uh, important to the, the the discussion of total depravity the that inclination to sin that sin nature that is going to be based on many 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 passages not just Romans chapter 5 right right all right let us move on then so this is at the 3804 um, sure. Mark. Depravity versus utter depravity. I 100% agree with the distinction. I appreciate the fact that um, that's the case. Yeah. So certainly, oh, actually going back to the Society of Evangelical Armenians um, definition that I cited from the get-go, um, it says that uh, total depravity does not mean that human beings are as bad as they could be, but that sin impacts every part of the person's being. So it's every aspect. And it does include the intellect. Now, um, the, in terms of the epistemological question that Warren brought up, it's a it's a tough one because on the on the one hand, unbelievers do know some true in the Bible. It's not like reading the Bible is like reading Chinese or something, you know, because I don't speak Chinese. But it's not it's not like that. That that's certainly not the case. But on the other hand, there is there are statements to say there's no one that understands, right? So there, you know, there's none that seek after God. So um, from that standpoint, even though they can understand, let's say, the facts of the gospel, they can understand the claim that uh, Jesus Christ, you know, died for their sins or something like that. They can understand the claim. They don't um, understand that 
it's good for them and that it, that God loves them and that God has the authority to do these things. And so there's, there's fundamental things which are, are not understood, but some things are. And that's the total versus utter. It, um, everything that they do believe is tainted with some amount of sin because they're believing it not for the glory of God, and they should be believing in God's promises for the glory of God. But uh... All right, so after looking at Romans 3, uh, 9 through 18, which is where this, you know, this concept comes from, um, I'm a little confused about uh, your remarks at this point, Dan, so let me pop that. There we go. All right, um, when we look at this passage, Paul doesn't say that there are some things people understand and some things that they don't, right? He specifically says that, uh, wait, hold on. Sorry, my, uh, huh, that's funny. I lost my place. So there are some things uh, that people don't understand and that there's some things that they do. He specifically says that, quote, no one understands. So just to be clear, for my sake and for the audience, probably more so my sake, um, what is the thing that Paul is addressing here that no one understands in this context? So I, I think it's about God, like, you know, understanding our relationship with God and the, the way of salvation and the necessity of salvation, that sort of thing. So Warren was correct when he said that Paul is drawing language from Psalm 14. I think uh, that is true. And it's interesting that that passage is about atheism. Um, so maybe if, 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 um, your experience, because you guys uh, probably uh, debated a lot of atheists, talked talk to a lot of atheists, that sort of thing. So from my standpoint, when I'm talking to atheists, what I find is um, it's hard for me to really, really, really put myself in their shoes because I'm always coming up with reasons why um, either they're being internally inconsistent or they're missing something externally that they should account for. So, um, so I mean... But the, the opposite is probably true as well. They have a hard time putting themselves in my shoes. Now, it doesn't mean we can't communicate with each other. It doesn't mean we don't have any common foundation. But to an extent, how much do we really fully understand each other's worldviews, right? So, so or like, like another example I could give you, like um, a religious terrorist, an extreme, you know, he's, he got, he's strapped to a bomb or something like that. Okay. Can you really put yourself into his shoes? Yeah, you can understand a little bit. You can understand, oh, well, maybe his uh, scriptures are telling him to do that. Maybe his community is telling him to do that. But for me, it's always a question of, well, how do, you know, like, how did he get to this point? How did it get this far? And so can you, do you, do you really understand that person? Not fully, some, Yes, you can have some knowledge of what they believe and why they believe it, but you can't really understand it. I think that's what Paul's up to. But what I will say is if the implication that Warren wants to draw from that is, well, this is limited to just a, a select group of, of atheists and not just every uh, uh, unregenerate unbeliever, then no, that's not what Paul's saying. He, he uses explicit righteous language. You know, there's none righteous. No, not one. And we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's talking to both Jews and Gentiles. So he's including everybody under the scope of condemnation under the law. And um, 
this ne necessity of a savior. So from that standpoint, I guess I'll just leave it at that, um, that um, even though the psalm is focused on atheism per se, Paul is, a, is applying the point very broadly to all Jews and Gentiles. Everyone is condemned to the law. We're all fallen short. There's no one that's righteous, no, not one. And everyone has some lack of understanding. Right on, right on. I, Dale, did you uh, mark uh, this audience question that we have here? Oh, yeah, I start, start a few. Tour. I guess we're doing them. Are we dealing with them on the spot or at the end? Yeah, we can. We can. Uh, I've been dealing with them on the spot, so. Okay. Yeah, I thought there was a... Oh, um... Well, let's get to this one first. So we are dealing with this one on the spot. So thank you, thank you, thank you for the super chat, Michael. Uh, so he said, was grilling and couldn't ask then, but Dan... Okay, I gotcha. Uh, but Dan stated that the lack of drawing explains why some reject, but also said that drawing can be resisted. These two seem at odds uh, with one another. So Dan, are they at odds uh, with each other? And Michael, again, thank you so much for the super chat. We really appreciate it. Yeah, uh, thank, thanks for the question, Michael. So I, I understand your 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 concern here. So you're so it. it is the only reason that people don't believe because they're not drawn? Yes, but is the reason why some people aren't drawn exhausted? Huh. I didn't say that clearly. Okay, so some people at that time, at that moment, were not, the father wasn't even trying to draw them, and that's what he's explaining in that case. Now, what... I think, okay, let me, uh, I'm stumbling over my words. I think what Christ is doing here is blaming them, is is pointing the finger at them and saying, you have a problem with the Father. Go fix that first before, you can, before we can be on the same page here. Now, a Calvinist wouldn't explain it that way, but I think that's what's going on. The Father was trying to draw some people, and they were resisting, and then he stopped, right? I think that's what's going on there. So is the, the reason why some members of Christ's audience weren't believing at that time and couldn't believe at that time is that they weren't being drawn. But that does not eliminate the possibility that at an earlier time, the Father wasn't trying to draw those people, the same individuals, and that they didn't previously um, resist. Now, it's easy for me to say I'm just, just saying that. Where do I get those ideas from? So I get those ideas from other passages in John. Um, here, let me, let, me, let me give you a few uh, different scripture references that will hopefully give uh, some food for thought on that. So in John 5, um, which is, by the way, it's the same audience that just follow uh, Jesus across the I forget, I think it might be the Sea of Galilee. But in, in John 5, it, he, uh, Jesus talks about this a little bit. Um, he says, um, he, um, so you, he, he says, uh, uh, I apologize, I wasn't quite ready for this, but let me find it. Um, if you had believed Moses' words, you would believe me because he wrote about me. That's in 546. He says, um, the reason why you can't believe me is because you seek honor from one another and not from the one true God. And then another passage along the same lines is in John 7 
and in John 7, 17, he says, if anyone wants to do the Father's will, he will understand whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak of my own, right? So there's this earlier work that the Father was doing on people to prepare them for Christ, a provenient work of grace to prepare people for Christ, and they rejected the Father. And so they weren't ready for Christ, and they can't believe in Christ. Now, the explanation of why aren't they believing this message now in John 6, in part, is because the Father wasn't drawing them at that time. But it doesn't mean that they couldn't have drawn, or the Father just didn't want to draw them, or essentially reprobated them and, you know, just let them go their own way. That's not the, that's certainly no necessary conclusion from John 6. Right on, right on. Um, Dan, let me offer a little bit of pushback. So okay. whenever you, and and I'm kind of jumping ahead in our, um, in, in the list of questions that I have for you, but I think this is a good point to bring this up. And so whenever you talked about drawing with Warren a little bit later on, you said that this would imply, uh, actually we talked about this a while ago, um, now that it comes to mind, but you said that this implies, or if not directly assumes that this is a motion toward God. So if God is actively drawing somebody, then they are coming toward God, right? So my question is, do they come toward God a little bit and then ultimately reject him? And then that's whenever the drawing stops or, or how does that work exactly in your view? Yeah, I think so. I think that's right. Yeah. So everyone I think um, is moved somewhat by grace in the direction of becoming a believer. Okay. Um, so the, I think the important thing is like the, the, when you go back to the fall, it's interesting to me that before they're told, Adam and Eve are told the curses from the fall, they're told the gospel, right? They're told that the Satan, the, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the, uh, the serpent's head, which is a prophecy about Jesus Christ. And they're told that before they're cursed, right? <laughs> then the curses come. So God didn't leave us alone in this you know in this state he re he's always reaching out because he loves but um but yeah I, I hopefully that that helps but yes i think everyone has moved some by grace everyone has moved in some direction towards christ um and then some people just dig their heels in okay dell is there anything uh we did have a follow-up from michael uh i i would like to address it uh since he did uh throw that super chat in um, but Dell, do you have anything uh, to add? And then we'll get back to Michael. Um, well, I just saw a, a good audience question from yeah. Bob Nan that was related to what you're saying before. And he's, he's kind of challenging you and asking, look, can, can we really separate the proclamation or propositions of the gospel or scripture from the working of the Holy Spirit in light of John 6, 63? Um, yeah. Most of the time, no. Of course, because God loves everybody, he wants to save them. Usually the drawing accompanies the gospel, but not always. Um, so probably a good example is the uh, maybe the four soils, right? So you know, the, the gospel is given to different uh, different types of soils. So there's the good soil, but then there's the rocky, the thorny. And so, you know, why is it the gospel, you know, uh, grows in the case of the good soil, but bounces off the stony soil, the sort of thing, right? So, you know, it is is it always the same? Um, 
no, not necessarily each and every time without exception, but as for the most part, because God loves everybody and wants to save them, he is drawing as he's preaching the gospel. Um, so I think I agree with your point in general. Um, okay, so let me put it this way. So it would seem like a very happy middle ground between provisionists and Arminians if all they were, all we were saying was, hey, if provisions were just saying provenient grace always accompanies the gospel, the two are hand in glove, they go together. In fact, you know, provenient grace is just baked into the gospel. I'd, I'd love it if that's what were the case, because there wouldn't be a point of contention. There wouldn't be a disagreement there. That's not the provisionist position. Right. It, it's not like they're stapling provenient grace to the gospel. Um, so that I think hopefully that clarifies the issue, Bob. Right on, right on. I don't want to throw you off, um, Dan, but uh, so do you want to go back to Michael's follow-up now? or sure, sure. Okay, okay. All right, fair enough. So this was not about the answer that you just gave, okay? So this was about the answer that you gave previously uh, in answering Michael's question. Uh, but Michael says, not a good answer. It seems like categorizing in the same manner that the Calvinists practice so they can be right no matter what. Did you want to respond to that now or maybe come back to that? Hmm. Okay. So, I mean, the best thing I can do is say, go, go ahead and just read through the earlier chapter, talking to the same audience, read through John 5. And I think hopefully you will see that there is earlier resistance to the Father and early, earlier resistance through Moses. Now, if you don't agree with me, that's fine. We don't have to agree with each other. Um, but I certainly see that there. But okay, so but now what's the let's let's re, let's reverse it. Let's say, well, what's the um what's the alternative here? That how else could we read the John 6 passage? Because Jesus is point blank saying the reason that i told you that no one can come to me is granted to him by the father what's the reason he said that because there's some of you that don't believe right what's the meaning you know so uh, you know michael i guess I, what i would challenge you is what's the alternative exegesis of john 6 64 and 65 and i know you're not here to answer that question so um, but I'm open to discussing it because that's just what I think Jesus is saying in that passage. And so that's why I believe it. Right on. Guys, we did get another super chat. Uh, so thank you, uh, Mitch. So he, uh, Mitch, and so for those interested, so I'm actually going to be interviewing Mitch this Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern time about his conversion from uh, Protestant Christianity uh, to Eastern Orthodoxy. So him and I are both catechumens in the Orthodox Church. And um, so I decided to bring him on to, to you know, poke, it, poke at him a little bit and get his reasons for uh, leaving Protestantism and, and joining the Orthodox uh, Church as a catechumen. And so he says, great chat, uh, you guys. Calvinism turns the Christian practice into an intellectual exercise. This is truly a depraved practice. So again, Mitch, thank you uh, so much for the super chat. We really, really uh, appreciate it. All right. Uh, Dale, is there anything that you wanted to follow up on, uh, with, with, uh, Dan's answers to um, Michael or Bob? Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah, so I guess, I guess on this front, I'm probably going to... Look, Christianity is not just an intellectual exercise. It's it's about more than that. Um, but I don't want to downplay the fact that intellectual exercises are good. I mean, God has given us a mind. He wants us to use it. And, you know, that's the whole point of divine revelation is to reveal things. So I, I know Mitch Murphy is into the Eastern Orthodoxy and a lot of the things with Orthodoxy is about this mystery and, and stuff like that. I, I tend to think that mystery, look, sometimes we just have to admit that we as human beings are limited and we don't have the answer right now. But mystery is never to be embraced. It's a bad thing. Ignorance is bad. We want to know as much as we can about God. That's what salvation is all about, right? It's that, or at least that's a part of it. So I would want to kind of push back against the what what Mitch is saying here if that in the sense that if he's trying to say that intellectual exercises in and of themselves are bad or, or not to be desired right on right on thank you for i i would just push back a little uh dale on what you said you know sure. there are definitely things that god has revealed to us right there are and those things i i agree 100 with you um that we should seek to know uh, as much as we can about God, but whenever we get into the part of speculation, right? I don't think that's doing anybody any good, and that seems to be where a lot of systems go, right? Uh, we get this warning in Scripture uh, from Paul. I forget exactly where it's at. I'll be like the author of Hebrews. Uh, Paul wrote somewhere that uh, you know don't go beyond Scripture, and so I think whenever we get into speculation, which comes with these intellectual exercises, uh, a lot of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, uh, then we're not really doing anybody any good. Uh, speculating on things, even though it's fun to do uh, sometimes. So, well, if you don't want to go beyond scripture, I'm not sure what you why you're heading east. <laughs> well, look, bud, I, we can talk about that later. So, <laughs> I'm investigating okay. right now. I'm investigating. So, I, I love okay. that your first question was a hypothetical question, but okay. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> <go ahead. laughs> All right. All right. So, let's see. I'm just going through the uh, chats uh, real quick. So I think we're good. All right. Um, let's go back to then the debate uh, with uh, with Warren and Dan. So I've got the 4320 mark up or, or the 4320 timestamp up. And Dan, I thought you nailed this part. So let's play this and then I'll offer my comments and see if you have any follow up. Let's see other things that came up. Um, oh, OK. So Romans 1, uh, 16. Let me let me look at that real quickly. I think the issue there is. Okay, so let me read the passage. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay, yes, it's powerful. Gospel, The gospel is powerful. But what is Paul saying? It is the power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes. The gospel saves believers. Now, Warren is making it say the gospel produces faith in unbelievers. No, it, that's well, that's certainly not what Paul is saying here. What Paul is saying here is that the gospel saves believers. Yes, and I, I love this part, uh, Dan. So I thought you nailed it. Like I said, I never agreed with the provisionist on this point. I've had this brought to me uh, multiple times, right? And I would just ask our provisionist friends if the gospel, so the good news about the reign of Christ and all that that all that entails in and of itself is the power of God into salvation, then what is happening when the gospel is rejected amongst unbelievers? Maybe we would word it a bit differently, but I would affirm that not only must the gospel be preached, 
the Holy Spirit must work in the heart of the unbeliever in order to convict them of the truth of the gospel so that they will believe it. And we were hitting on that earlier. Uh, but Dan, would you agree uh, with, I, I think we would agree uh, and be somewhat in the same boat there. Uh, but how would you word that? Sure. So, I, yes, I agree with you. And it's not that the gospel. So let me make sure I'm clear on this. It's not like there's additional information that the Holy Spirit is providing somebody like through some type of inspired direct revelation that's not in the Bible. This, it, It's not that way. All the information that we need is in the Bible and it's in the, it's clearly taught in the gospel. And so what we need to know to be saved is clearly taught in the Bible and that's in the gospel. Hmm. Um it's so that's not the inf- uh, the problem. It's not a lack of information, but there is a resistance, a, a hatred, an enmity towards the Messiah because of the fall, and that's what needs to be overcome. So, um, you know, so one of the passages that, uh, that we haven't touched on quite yet is the Second Corinthians uh, four, uh, three, four, three through four. So there, Paul is going to great lengths to say how clearly he has preached the gospel. And here, I'll, I'll pull up the text just uh, real quickly. So it's, yeah. um, so apologize. No, you're good. And what text is that? Uh, again, maybe I can, I should have been doing this from the get-go, but maybe I'll share it on our screen so our audience can look at it as well. So Second Corinthians 4, and we can start at verse 2. Um, what, uh, just out of curiosity, Dan, what translation are you using? It's, um, I'm open to uh, right now. I'm just using the Holman, but I mean, I, I like I like a lot of them. So I, I think I don't think there's going to be a variant that's going to make any difference. Fair enough. ESV is fine if you like ESV. Okay, let me see if I can share this without um, getting rid of the YouTube channel. Well, that's okay. All right, Second Corinthians four. And you said starting in two, right? Starting at, yeah, verse two. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so uh, instead we renounce shameful and secret things, not walking in deceit, distorting God's message, but commend ourselves to every person's conscience and God's sight by an open display of the truth. Okay, how clear could he be? He's not hiding things. He's openly displaying the truth. Paul is preaching the gospel to these people as clearly as he can, as openly as he can. Can they believe it? No. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, so that's the the problem. In the face of an open display of the gospel, they cannot believe because they're being blinded by Satan. Uh, For we uh, not only proclaim ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus Christ. Now in verse 6, he provides the solution. For the God who said, let light shine out of darkness. What passage is he quoting there? Mm. Right? Where did God say, let there be light? Mm -hmm. It's when he created the world out of nothing. Right? It's not just, you know, the reading a book so when god said create uh, let shine let shine light shine of the darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of god's glory in the face of jesus christ that's the solution to the blindness it's not just a just go read your bible um you know anyways right on right on dale any follow-up 
No, you good? Okay. All right. Let's go to, uh, let's see. So this is the 4815 timestamp. I don't hear anything about overcoming an inability in our ontological. Uh, in his opening statement, Dan quoted passages which speak of men sinning, but not one said we're created that way. He referenced passages where wicked and, and carnal men are going to reap these rewards uh, or the consequences of their sin. Um, talked about the goodness of God and his grace. There was a lot of slides there. I was trying my best to keep up. Um, but none of them actually stated the unique entailments and claims, uh, the, the distinctives of total depravity. Now, uh, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, doesn't make the distinction of Hebrews 4, as these passages are making different points. I quoted Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, talking about Christ being made like his brothers, the offspring of Abraham in every respect. Hebrews 4 says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Meaning, not only was Christ like us ontologically, when he assumed the totality of our nature to redeem it, as Gregory of Nazianzus said, whatever he did not assume, he did not heal, uh, as affirmed by Chalcedon, uh, Chalcedon 451. Uh, but tonight we're talking about the Bible. Um, but Hebrews 4 is saying that he was tempted but didn't sin. It's not saying that um, he was created like us but didn't have this total inability in an ontological uh, state where we have imputed guilt and sinfulness, this nature. That's not what it's talking about. Just saying he was tempted like us and didn't give in. Thus, he redeemed us. If you're familiar with the various redemptive models of the early church, there you go. Uh, All right, Dan. So this, uh, let me pop that off there. Okay. So this distinction has been brought to my attention before in some group chats that I'm in and without even noticing. So I was doing what uh, Warren is talking about here. So I was combining Hebrews 2 and four and concluding an ontological notion. I was under the impression that Christ was made like us and yet without sin, understanding Christ to be without a sin nature. But I think, as Warren points out here, this is a false conclusion. Hebrews 2 says Christ was made like us in every respect, period. Hebrews 4 then goes on to say that he was tempted like us in every respect and yet did not or was without sin. That being said, would you affirm man? I swear I'm going to get a better thing. All right. That being said, sorry. Would you affirm that Christ has a sinful nature? And if not, do you think this significantly impacts our understanding of human ontology and total depravity, given that Hebrews 2 tells us that Christ was made like us in every respect? So Christ did not have a sin nature. It, because of the virgin birth, he's an exception. Um and that's the one of the key significant um, points of the virgin birth is that ex exemption from having that sin nature. Mm -hmm. But let's fo let's follow Warren's argument here, because you know earlier we were talking about well, what about original guilt versus this concupiscence, right? But his argument rules out both. Did Christ have an inclination to sin? such that at the first chance he gets, he actually sins. No. Do we all sin, right? So every single person, at least for the sake of discussion, will take out infants and just say every single in adult sins. Why was Christ an exception to that, right? So if, if Warren's argument 
for it to work, it knocks out, hey there. Uh, so it knocks out not just guilt, it knocks out concupiscence, if Warren's argument is, is any good. Now, he's, his argument has two forms, is a strong form and a weak form. So the weaker form is just that, right? That, well, Christ must not have had, uh, we don't have sin natures because Christ didn't have one. The stronger form is the, uh, which he elaborates on later, is that whatever Christ didn't assume, he didn't redeem. Right, so so he's he's arguing against penal substitution in the atonement, right? That so the penal substitution is this: God is the lawgiver and the judge, and he is offended because we have broken his law, and the punishment for sin is death. The wages of sin is death, and Christ died for us. And we so when we say Christ died for us, it's not just a general for in that oh he likes you, no he died in our place as a substitute in our stead. So the death that we owed, he took. Now, the, there's a, a gracious accepting of that substitution by the Father, so I don't doubt that. But he's taking, he's knocking out penal substitution by this argument. And so what he's saying, what Warren is saying is, well, if total depravity or original sin, the concupiscence, is a penalty for the fall, then and Christ didn't take it, then because Christ wasn't totally depraved, he didn't have this inclination to sin, therefore, um, then there must not be one. So that's terrible because there's so many biblical punishments in scripture that Christ didn't personally take, like uh, he wasn't swallowed by a whale, he wasn't, he didn't eat uh, grass like an ox for years, you know, the, the, um, he wasn't judicially hardened, he, you know, there's so many individual punishments, it's the, the big macro punishment of death, that's where the substitution happens and, and that sort of thing. So I think that can be just, just shown with counterexamples. In terms of the sin nature, again, the it's an extreme argument because it's taking out not just original guilt, but concupiscence. But I think now to your last point, Tyler, you asked, well, what does this teach us about ontology? What it teaches us about ontology is what is it? What's the core of being a human? And it is certainly having a body, but it's also having a soul and intellect, a will and emotions. And that's a common baseline that we in Christ had. So Adam, before the fall, had a body, but a soul, will, intellect, emotions, all that stuff. We still have that after we're fallen. We will have, once we're regenerated, we still have that. Once we're in heaven and we can't sin any longer, we'll still have that. So Christ's uh, human nature was completely human in those essential aspects, in what's centrally human. Um, so what that means is that our fallen fallenness is um, accidental, not essential to human nature, because we'll still be human in heaven when we can't sin. Christ couldn't sin. We won't be able to sin once we're in heaven, once we're glorified, but we'll still be human. Christ was still human. Um, so I think that's what it teaches us about our, our uh, sin nature. So the way I would say it is it's not so much what we have in terms of a body, a soul, uh, intellect, emotions. It's what we're missing. And it's that close union and fellowship that we had in the garden where Adam was walking with God. That's what's missing. 
in the first John four passage, when it says that um, in him was light and light was the light of men. Um, that's what people are missing without prevenient grace. So it's not so much what we're, um, what we are, but what we're missing that is the pro problem uh, in total depravity. I hope that makes sense. But uh, hopefully that, that answers the question. I think it does. And so I, uh, sorry, I had to run there for a minute. I had to take care of my little girl and I don't know how, if she's going to let me keep going or not, but we will, uh, they'll hold on just a second, guys. Let me, uh, let me take care of her. Dale, if you'll take over for a second. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I think I'm more or less on the same page as, as you, Dan, like, I'll, um, so it's just weird to me. So, so, so this guy, Warren is, is denying that even sinful human beings have a sin nature. I guess we, there was no, is that the first aspect of his argument? He's denying that even we have a sin nature. So I, I hope I'm misunderstanding him, but I don't think I am. I think he's arguing against two things very explicitly. One, he's arguing against concupiscence. And two, he's arguing against penal substitution in the atonement. I think that's the core of his argument. So I don't think a lot of provisionists would be able to consistently make this argument. Maybe they would adopt a piece of it. Maybe they have some way to navigate through the, the mud. But I, his argument, if it's accepted, knocks out not just original guilt, but a, but a sin nature or inclination to sin, and it knocks out penal substitution. Um, both of which I think are just just ridiculously biblical. Like, <laughs> and and where does so the, the thing that had me kind of you can't see, but rolling my eyes, I, I couldn't. So this is from a council that uh, God can't, Jesus couldn't redeem anything that he didn't assume literally where, where does this come from because that's so crazy he, he, so he is he's taking gregory of nazianzus out of context in there if you read that passage that uh, quote from nazianzus nazianzus is specifically saying that we fell in adam and that we have a sin nature what then he goes on to explain so you have to understand nazianzus's opponent to understand his argument but what he's saying is Jesus didn't just have a human body, like physical flesh. He had a soul and intellect that was uh, full. So Jesus is fully man. That's Nazianzus' point in that um, it's both, Christ was both in body and soul a human. That's that's where he's going with it. Um, so I think I think he's taking Nazianzus out of, out of context. So kind of like, sorry, go, go ahead, Dan. No, finish your thought. I was gonna say, oh, those those poor redheads. Jeez, they're they're <laughs> they're gone. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. Right. Okay, cool. But yeah, so he's taking that out of context and stuff. But yeah, okay, that's cool. Uh, again, I would I would just take the view. I know this. Some people don't like it, but I, I don't agree that there is such a thing as a human soul or a human mind or whatever. I think that there's just a mind and there's a will and and stuff like that. That person a person has. And a person that is embodied in a, a physical body governed by the human genome, that's the human nature. You don't need to posit, oh, there's a and he's got a human soul and a human mind plus his divine mind. I, I just don't go. I think that's just compli unnecessarily complicating things. So, yeah. See, and that's the, you know, well, Dan, if you want to respond to that, um, I'll, I was going to switch up topics a little bit, but go ahead. So I guess just to clarify, Dale. So are you you're so you're a Christian physicalist? Then I guess might be a way to describe it. 
No, I, so I think um, it's it's the same view. It's kind of like an avatar view that Dr. William Lane Craig would would understand, right? So Trinity monotheism is a model. God is one being, a soul, and he has three sets of faculties sufficient for personhood. One of those persons, Jesus, gained a body governed by uh, the human genome. So he was a person that is embodied in, in a physical body governed by that human genome. That alone is is the human nature kind of thing. It's it, He didn't have to, oh, and I've popped, I've got a human soul too. And I developed a human mind or a human will. No, he, he just do, do you, are, are you familiar with the Council of Chalcedon? And do you agree with the Council of Chalcedon where it talks about Jesus being fully man and fully God? I, I definitely agree with Jesus, Jesus being fully man and fully God. He had all the essential properties of the human nature. Um, Dale just that, doesn't agree with, like, he would be a monothelitist, right? So I think it was the Sixth Council that dealt with that. So Dale would affirm that Jesus only has one will instead of a divine will and a human will. And Dale, you can correct anything. No, that's right. That's, okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the, I think then maybe you wouldn't necessarily agree with the Council of Chalcedon. Then perhaps it'd be worth looking at. But anyway, I don't want to distract the the show. I appreciate you clarifying. The, thank you for indulging my questions. I was uh, you you said something very interesting and piqued my interest. Awesome. Awesome. We should do uh, another show about that, uh, Dan, if you're interested. So about the the wills of God, because Dell and I've been going back and forth. Uh, uh, with that concept, given that, you know, Orthodox, they affirm uh, all seven ecumenical councils. Well, depending on what you define as an ecumenical council, right? Because I know Rome has like 20 of them or 21, <laughs> I think it is. Um, but but anyway, so anyway, um, so let's go then. If you guys uh, wanted to go ahead and I think my daughter's going to let me uh, keep going on the podcast, but I might have to um, go and take care of her intermittently. So let's go then to the 5840 mark real quick. Let me get this pulled up. And we will, uh, I think this is the cross-exam portion, if I'm not mistaken. So share my screen. And here we go. So let's start with uh, John 6, um, obviously a key text here. So... Um, let's start with John 6 40. John 6 40 says, this is the will of my father that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him in the last day. So is Christ offering himself as the means of salvation through faith in him in John 6 40? Let me pull that up real quick here. Da, 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 da. So well, the, the question, if you would, Dan, just go ahead. Um, so the, the text is, uh, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him in the last day. So is Christ offering himself that people can have salvation by believing in him? Yes, this is the will of my father, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is, a, I believe, drawing a parallel between him and uh, the brass serpent that Moses lifted up in the, the wilderness. Would you say this is a pretty clear presentation of the gospel, at least as it, I mean, pre, a pre-resurrection, a pretty clear presentation of the gospel? I mean, I, I think I think the good news is, is pretty simplistic and easy to understand. I, I think that that's... Would you call it coded language? 
Um, yeah, I, I think so. Um, at the time, people did not realize that he was referencing his own crucifixion. I don't, I don't believe this is John six. No, I don't believe that they were aware of that. Okay, fair enough. But if his immediate audience had trusted in him as Messiah, um, would they have been saved? He hadn't been lifted up yet, so I don't. I don't believe that. Um, I think the chronology is out of order here. When, if, if everyone, if everyone who was in his audience uh, was there when he was crucified, and believed in him and his resurrection and his work, they, they'll be saved. Yes. Okay. Um, cool. All right. So this is the part where I speak to our audience in the future. Well, future from now uh, for me, but uh, but not not the future for you who is listening on our podcast, not necessarily on YouTube, YouTube, but our podcast. So this is where I'll be breaking this off uh, to do our part two, since we can only upload a certain amount of megabytes to our podcasting platform because I'm not rich and I can't afford the uh, the next step up uh, where we can upload like 200 megabytes, I think it is. So please continue this uh, discussion uh, to get uh, Dan and my and Dell's responses uh, to this continuing conversation. It will be part two and this will be uploaded uh, about a day after uh, I upload part one just to make sure everybody gets it. So this is the end of part one. And so continue this discussion on part two, if you're listening on our podcast. All right. So, oh man, I want to ask Warren about this passage or, or about this segment whenever it comes up. But Dan, I just want to get your thoughts uh, about what was Warren saying here? So he, he's going to come on next Wednesday, but hearing this again, I just have to ask, what's your immediate reaction when hearing Warren say this? Is he stating that people weren't saved until after the crucifixion? Or through the gospel. I mean, so I think what we're finding here is is uh, incipient inclusivism, which okay. is essentially, you know, some people ask the question of, well, what about Native Americans that didn't hear the gospel or something like that? So how do they get sure. saved? I suspect that's what's going on. I don't know. I think it's good that you uh, follow up with Warren and, and ask him to clarify that point. So I don't want to speculate in terms of what Warren would say. Yeah. My guess is that's where he's going with the this line of response. Um, the way I look at it, of course, is that, you know, people have got the gospel promise from the garden. And then it's clarified further with Abraham. Then it's clarified further with Moses, then David, then, you know, Isaiah. And it just keeps getting more and more and more. We have this picture until Christ comes and needs the full revelation. Um, but even then until the resurrection, then we fully get the full picture. But either right. way, in the Old Testament times, people look forward to the cross and uh, believed in the Messiah. We look back to the cross and believe uh, in Jesus Christ. Um, but it's the same central core message of salvation that is the gospel um so i think um you know from from that standpoint i just uh, am concerned now the way it fit into that debate point i was trying to make the point that hey look people had mm -hmm. the gospel and they still couldn't believe it mm -hmm. so you know i was trying to i was trying to point that out to them but uh um you know it, to be honest you know, I guess that's why you have those cross-examination moments, and I think it it kind of um, exposes which 
I would say between the John 6 cross-examination and also the cross-examination on John 15, 5, those two, I thought it were especially clear that um, the way Warren handles those passages to get out of believing in total depravity is quite severe. Right, right. And, you know, if anything was spoken in coded language, right? And I get Jesus didn't reveal everything even to the disciples, right? Some things they couldn't bear and they had to wait till the Holy Spirit came, right? But there's still these fundamental tenets of the gospel that was even proclaimed, I the scripture says, to Abraham, right, in, in Hebrews. But I would even, you know, say that even uh, uh, Adam, right, we, we get the first hint. So if anything is coded, right, it would be Old Testament that you were talking about, you know, just a little bit ago, that this progressive revelation, it just gets clearer and clearer and clearer. And finally, you have God incarnate standing before you telling you, this is the gospel, right? I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. Um, believe me. And we see in John where they get, they, they, they have, you know, moments of belief, right, that, that, I don't, I don't know if they kind of fade or, or, or what happens, but I, I definitely want to ask Warren about this uh, whenever he comes on. And so I'll leave it at that. Dale, um, is there anything that you would like to add? I, I see you clicking uh, some audience questions, but is there anything that you'd like to add to that uh, segment before we get to audience questions? Um, not, not really. I think you guys kind of have kind of said more or less, right? Like I, I would take an inclusivist perspective myself. I do I do think that, um, yeah, you don't need, I'm not, you don't need um, explicit knowledge that Jesus died for your sins to be saved, right? Because obviously Abraham didn't have that and that was fine, right? There is other, it's it's based on other criteria at that point type deal, right? So yeah, nothing really to add, but I was just kind of um, highlighting uh, from Jamie Russell, Mm -hmm. one of our... uh, you can see he's just asking, look, can God save any of them according to the lights they are given? And that's where my answer is yes, obviously, right? So Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think we see this, right? And and not only and just to add to what you were saying, Dill, so I pushed back on you a while ago a little bit, uh, but I'll agree with you here, right? Okay. And I think the fundamental gospel, what must we do, right, is trust God. Like this is what I think this is the common denominator that we see. If there's anything that connects the Old Testament saints to the New Testament saints and even after the New Testament into our age, right, it's a fundamental trust and allegiance to Yahweh, right, to God, to whether he's revealed uh, as, you know, I think that God was revealed as uh, the Trinity in, you know, and we see glimpses of that in like Genesis 19, for example, and, and just all throughout the Old Testament. But regardless of whether it's Jesus Christ or, or, or not, it's a fundamental trust in God that I think is the evident fruit that someone is a saint, that someone is a believer in Christ. That's what it means, right? So, Dan, would you agree with that, or, or would you push back on me a little bit? Um, I'm a, an exclusivist, so I think that, you know, if someone is responding to the God's revelation through nature, God will send somebody to, to preach the gospel to him. I don't know, maybe he sends angels, whatever. Um, in Job 33, it says that, uh, you know, he comes to people in dreams and things like that. So I, I don't know, but somehow the issue I have with the, it's not that if somebody trusted in the father that they wouldn't be saved. Cause I agree with you 
that right. if somebody trusts in the Father, they'll be saved. The problem is, why would they trust him if they don't have a revealed promise that right. he's going to save them? So what are they trusting in? They know that they're sinners. They know that they can't, you know, they, they, they can, they, they know that they're guilty. They know maybe even that God is good through creation. But where's that promise unless they hear the message? So I think that's where um, I, I would prefer, I prefer the, the approach of you know, well, God will just send somebody, or um, or reveal it to him some some other way. Um, so, anyways, um, but right. I, yeah, I'm, I'm an exclusivist from that standpoint, not not an inclusivist. Gotcha. Kind of like the prophets are. Well, let me let me say this real quick, Dale, and then I'll get back to you. So, kind of like the prophets of the Old Testament, right? That that's who God sent in those times to proclaim the message. Look, this is this is what we need to do. This is uh, Jonah and Nineveh, Isaiah, you know, to, uh, Jerusalem, uh, Jeremiah, even to Judea, right? Th that's what you're talking about, Dan. Yes. Yeah. Right. Now, so the Job passage is for, goes further. And I know that okay. later on Job says that they taught some bad things. So what the Job's friends said that was bad and good, I won't get into, but in Job 33, yeah. he, um, here I can read it, but so he basically says that Jesus comes. Yeah, let me let me let me pull it up so I don't misquote it. Um, this will so just take a minute. I know I know we're trying to wrap up Jim, too, but uh, no, no. Go ahead. Just just so know while you're pulling this up. Okay, so you are you are saying that yeah, people in the Old Testament they had the exact same proposit set of propositions given to them that re represent the essential gospel message as as Peter did after Jesus' resurrection or something or after the no 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 uh, no. So they had it in. Uh, pun intended they had it in seed form <laughs> right okay. like the seed okay. of the uh, uh of the woman but anyways yeah so it's it's like looking at a painting through a smaller hole and then the hole gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and finally you see the whole thing anyways okay so look at uh let's start at verse 14 i'm Oh, we can just, okay, so I'll use this version. For God uh, speaks time and again, but a person may not notice it. In a dream, a vision in the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds, he uncovers their ear at a time and terrifies them with warnings in order to turn a person from his actions and suppress his uh, pride. God spares his soul from the pit, his life from crossing the river of death. Um, and then go down to the bottom of this chapter because he comes back to it. Um Let's see, starting in 29. So um, God certainly does all these things two or three times to a man in order to turn him back from the pit so that he may shine the light of life. Pay attention, Job, and listen to me. Be quiet, and I will speak. Okay, so now, again, Job is tricky because we know specifically that God comes out and says some of Job's friends said the wrong things. Okay, right. but not everything they said was wrong. What they seem to be saying, and this is way back, maybe around the time of Abraham, no one really knows, but some somewhere way back, that you know that God was revealing Himself to people through dreams. Now, you know, when people ask about, well, what about the Native Americans, right? You know, what what about the the Mayans or the Zapotecs or something like that? I don't know. Maybe something like this applies to them, but um, but who knows? But what what I would say is. Do we have? I would. I would highly question. Do we have enough information through nature so that we can trust our future, our eternal estate to God? Because it's, it almost seems like we need to hear, you know, 
if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. You almost need to hear that to say, okay, I'm going to turn this over to you. And my future is in your hands. Right. So anyways, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah. All right. So the next uh, time uh, stamp. So this is the 10548 mark. And, and again, I just want to say good job here. And then I will, I'll ask you the question uh, after we watch this. So pull the stream up and let's click play. Okay. Well, I, mean, um, I, think, I think Helco, I think Helco is not only just uh, drawing or dragging as some people say, but it's also to woo. Um, and, and no, so no, 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 I, well, I disagree. Woo. So woo is like a, trying to win over a woman's affections, let's say. Okay. So does every time someone tries to win over a woman's affection, does he actually win over her affection? You and I are very successful in that, I'm sure. But I think the average person watching would say, no, they don't have our track record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So um, that's why woo is not a synonym for draw. Because woo does not always imply movement or in the thing wooed. So that's why woo is not a synonym for draw. I, I agree. Um, I agree. But I think what we're doing is we're instead of looking at the Greek uh, word for helco, which is what we're discussing, what does that mean in the author's intent? We're taking an English translation and then anachronistically applying it back with a singular definition. Well, okay. So can you find any examples in uh, Greek where the word helco is used and there's not, if it's a physical sense movement of the object, and if it's in a mental sense, uh, change in mental dis disposition. Are there any examples of Helco that you can provide like, like that? Because I don't actually, I know there's not any, but go, but go ahead. It, it, you're asking me if I can provide an example of Helco where it's it's being used as, as woo? No, what I'm saying is, are there any examples of Helco where if it's physical, the object isn't moving, the object being Helcoed isn't actually moving, or if it's mental, that the mind isn't changing. Can you find either of those? I contend you will not be able to because I've looked for them and they don't exist. But yeah, if I mean, you can I, find one, I'll, I'd love to hear it. No, I'll, I'll concede that. I mean, I, if you want to allot me 15 minutes to go on a search, I'd be happy to use your time. But uh, sure. I don't have anything ready by, on the hand. All right. So my question, uh, Dan, so like I said, good job. Uh, I thought that was uh, very meaningful right there. But is this why people who say that uh, Helkuo means to woo are ultimately unsuccessful at arguing for this definition? Because there's no usage of Helkuo in the New Testament or Septuagint that would indicate this meaning? Uh, okay, I have to qualify it because... Okay. Um, so the... Um, the examples that people will point to will be like in a Song of Solomon in the Septuagint where um, the woman is drawing her lover into the bedroom, right? So, but the person is actually going into the bedroom. So, but let me, let me put it this way. The difference between the Calvinist and Arminian is that the Helcoing, whatever it is, is essentially effectual mm -hmm. and always guarantees that result. Whereas on the 
Armenian side, it's um, it it happens to be successful in that case. It didn't have to be, but it happens to be. So it's accidentally um, successful. Now, let me give you another example of this, just in a different context. So let's say, for example, when Christ said, um, "Whoever puts away his wife is causing her to commit adultery," mm-hmm. right? Now, does every divorced woman is she is every divorced woman committing adultery? No, and that's not what Christ is saying. So. But those that are, the fact that they were divorced is causing them to commit adultery. Mm-hmm. So it was a you know kind of this necessary condition for the d- adultery to follow, and it influenced the person to to commit the adultery. But it's not essential that uh, you know everyone divorced commits adultery. It's that in the cases where they are committing adultery the cause part of the cause was divorce so it's not it's not the the some type of irresistible nature of the divorce that ca- guarantees effectually that the person is going to commit adultery but if they do commit adultery then um you can look back and say well that the the, the divorce was the cause so it's very very much like that when when it comes to wooing um and helco the in the case where you're trying to win over a woman's uh, affections and you actually do, then helco is an appropriate word. If you're trying to win over a woman's affections and you don't win over her affections, then helco is the wrong word for that situation. So woo can't be used as a synonym for draw only when you're trying to woo somebody and they get wooed and they change, right? They change from, from not wooed to wooed. Um, and you know, the, in that case, yes, then, then Helco accidentally is a synonym for draw, but not essentially a synonym for draw. It's a very odd point, but it's like uh, it's move, like, like move. You can't use the word move you know, if you don't actually relocate the pencil, right? Right. If it doesn't move, then you haven't moved it, right? Okay. So draw is kind of like that. You know, and it's it seems, and Dan, this is where I would need you to really correct me if I'm wrong because I don't want to speak out of line, but it seems like there's a synergy involved. And what I mean by that is not necessarily because, you know, so this is my mic clip, right? I'm moving it around. I'm not attempting to move it. I'm actually effectually moving it. But it seems like there's a synergy in which both I am moving, right, or or helcooing this, right? I'm drawing it to myself right now, and it's coming, right? Like there's a both and to this to this definition of helcuo. Is is that fair? Okay. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Like, like, like with the car, right? So, yep. if the if a car is in neutral, the tow truck is moving the car. If the car puts its brake on, <laughs> then the tow truck doesn't move it. Yeah, same way. Right on. And so, Jamie uh, actually asked an interesting uh, question here, and I think I know what you would say, but I don't want to speak for you. Uh, Dan Chappell, would you prefer influence or make? So instead of wooing, whenever it comes to Helcuo, right? 
and this is just my opinion, but, but Dan, I'll let you speak to it, but influence doesn't seem like it captures that synergy that I was talking about, right? If you can attempt to influence someone, but if you're successful at that influence, then it's, you know, then you've got Helkuo, but it's a little bit, I don't know, is it less than making? Because that almost sounds like determinism, right? It does. Yeah. So I, I, I I'm not sure I would, sign on board to either fully i don't think influences is enough because you can if you put it in the past tense of influenced Mm -hmm. or persuaded i think there you're getting really really close to the sense that christ is using the the word draw um I, i think so once you once you but that transforms it into the past tense but um but um, move is probably the closest synonym, frankly. Yeah, move instead of make that kind of, like I said, it implies almost a deterministic uh, sense, right? Or force, right? We wouldn't say that uh, either. So, okay. Uh, Dell, any follow-up? Good to go? All right. Go, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say good to, good to go because, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know the Greek myself on this, so. Yeah, um, it's interesting. It looks like Jamie was saying that you he learned something, so you got you got to him. So good, right on. Okay, right on. That, that's what we try to do, right? If, if one person wants learns one thing from our episodes, <laughs> hey, success, right? Success. And so, all right, all right, fair enough. Um, oh, by the way, so I do have a follow up to that, Dan. So, and you might not know this, I don't know, but just out of curiosity, do you know if there are any church fathers? who used the term Helkuo in the way of wooing, right? Where it's not, um, well, everything that we just discussed, right? Where it's not moving. Um, or is this used, Helkuo, is it used um, in the sense of wooing or attempting to woo in secular literature? Do you know of any place where that, I know you said you've looked this up and and uh, I don't know if that was to the New Testament or, or what. So anyway. So, um, yes, I've looked it up both in New Testament, Old Testament, and in the Greek uh, literature that's available. Um, Plato has one interesting use, but it's not Koine Greek. It's a, it's in cl- a classical Greek okay. um, where you could probably make a little bit more of an argument. The, other, other than that, yeah, there's certainly times when it's used as persuaded, like in the past tense when somebody's yeah. actually changed their mind. The, there's certainly cases where it's wooed, like, complete a completed wooing uh, uh, where it, it actually worked um but but that's about it the best resource i'd g- give you is the um so he, when we, i'd have to look it up exactly on youtube but uh chris date and Leighton flowers had many discussions on it and chris date did at least three episodes where he went through case by case by case of maybe I don't know, at least 50 different, 50 different extra biblical usage around the time uh, in Koine Greek in the literature. And um, he is, he's exactly right in, in, in the point that he's making. So I would highly recommend that study to get, uh, to get your arms around the extra biblical usage of the term Helco. Okay. Maybe after this, Dan, if you want, or I can look it up. Uh, if you can find those, uh, send them to me and I'll post them in the description so everybody can find them uh, easy. Sure. Okay, great. All right. So I've got, so I've got one more, que- well, two more questions technically, but then we've got an audience question that was asked uh, by Drew Russell before we even came on here. So um, he had posted this on Facebook and I wanted to get your opinion on it as well. 
Um, but all right, so the last timestamp I have, oh wait, I take that back. I've got two more uh, questions. So two more timestamps and then uh, the audience questions. So let's go to the 120 mark. Let's see, 120. We'll just start right there and I'll share my screen. Okay. That's the beauty yeah. of pain and, and all of that that God gave us out of his mercy. Let me ask you about So let's go one chapter four to chapter 15. So in chapter 15, in verse five, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me, he uh, is he that will bear much fruit. And then he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that last clause mean? For apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, he is he's the life-giving spirit. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is the tree of life. He is um, the way, the truth, the life. He's the standard. Um, so, you know, nothing of nothing of, of worth or merit apart from truth and life. So uh, can unbelievers do good? I don't think that's the context that it's talking about here in a generic sense of doing good. Uh, for even you who are accustomed to doing evil know how to give good gifts to your children. The Bible recognizes those are good gifts. Um, so yes, they're accustomed to doing evil, but they're capable of doing good. But this is talking about, I believe, in, in a spiritual sense of of um, the deeper things of God. Yeah. Yeah. So with so your is it your position that apart from union with Christ, um, unbelievers can can do good things? Uh I would I would equivocate on what you mean by unbeliever because generally that's a willful rebellion and refusal to believe. Um, Non-believers, you know, let's say their conflicting thoughts excuse them. Um, they they can do they can do good things. They haven't willfully chosen disbelief. Um, but if you've committed yourself to disbelief, then that's the mindset. And now you're back in that world system and unable to do so. All right, Dan. So I've got two questions here. Um, oh, whoops. I didn't mean to click that. All right. So two questions. So would you say that unregenerate people are apart from or not united to God? And number two, since you believe that faith precedes regeneration, would you say that unbelievers can do good things since believing in Christ is a good thing? So when we talk about united to God, I guess it depends on what you mean. So if you mean in the sense of creation and concurrence, like that uh, he's sustaining us in our existence and we would kind of pop out of existence and be nothing if it wasn't for God. Okay. Yeah, in that sense, yeah, sure. In him we live and move and have our being. I don't think, actually, I know that's not what Christ was talking about in John 15. Okay. So to get the fuller context, verse four, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit and for apart from me, you can do nothing. So he says three times, you know, the branch can't bear fruit of itself. Um, you Neither can you unless you abide in me. And apart from me, you can do nothing. He's talking about fruit, which is spiritual good works. Now, this right. whole 
the whole concept of which is scattershot throughout scripture of the tree and the fruit goes against frankly anyone that's denying the concupiscence and this in nature because the tree is bad that's why the fruit is bad right it's you know and it, it's it's not this enlightenment you know kind of tabula rasa idea of whatever we do that's what we are no 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 bad trees produce bad fruit so now that's the, that's the primary issue um that's at stake here so i i guess i would i would start um i would start start there now in terms of the second part of your question if i heard you correctly tyler you said well hey faith is good so can does that mean that we can believe so certainly not apart from providing grace if i said anything i'm saying that we need god's grace god's providing grace to be able to believe but and union through christ um is due to god right so in first corinthians 1 30 we're told it's because of him that you are in christ jesus so i agree with you that faith is good right peter says that it's more precious than gold um paul says that it's one of the three eternal virtues faith open love faith is good but it's not because of any of the goodness of faith that we are are saved or because of any of the goodness of faith that we're incorporated into Christ Jesus. Hey, Dan, so I don't mean to interrupt you at all, but for some reason, your audio just got really weird. Um, I didn't know if it was just coming through on my end, but Dale nodded uh, whenever I asked him, and then Jamie said that she could uh, hear it as well. So maybe you might try unplugging your mic and plugging it back in. Or uh, Jamie said that she did uh, uh, catch all of that. And I did too, for the most part. I didn't want to interrupt though. How's, how's that? How's that now? It's still about the um, same. Sound better? Still a little, yeah, still a little bit. <laughs> okay, let me. Uh, and Jamie's a voice. Yeah. Jamie is a guy. I am sorry, Jamie. I did not. I did not mean to. I was wondering. I'm like, did, did I have it wrong this whole time? I didn't know she was, <laughs> it was a girl. I was just gonna go until he said something. So, <laughs> but okay, fair enough. So Jamie's a real boy. All right, fair enough. Apologies, Jamie. Testing. Testing. That's better. That's better. There you go. That's better. Okay. Okay. I just, okay. Anyways. Okay. Right. Um, so I was going a mile a minute. Let me see if I can. So we can't believe without prevenient grace. Okay. It's because of him. First Corinthians one uh, 30, because of him, we're united in Christ Jesus. I agree with you that faith is good, but it's not because of any goodness and faith that we're justified. It's not because of any goodness and faith that we're united to Christ. Now, even the most, even Calvinists, not Arminians, but Calvinists would not, would affirm positively that we're united to Christ by faith. And in their order salutis, they would not put union to Christ before faith. So I think if you're, if you're trying to press it that far, I'm not sure that actually that's not what Christ is saying here. When he's talking about fruit, he's talking about obedience to God's commands, mm -hmm. and that in the context of because we're attached to him and united with him. So I think that's more the point rather than this faith precede regeneration specifically. But uh, anyways, hopefully that's clear enough. Um, you know, we can I can leave it at that.
Okay, fair enough. And you know, I I hear you know, Dan, what you're saying. But so, like I said uh, a little bit ago before we came on here, I was translating First John, and there's a very interesting you know passage in First John. And if you want to follow up on this, you can. If not, we can move on. Um, but you know, this is his command that we've received to believe in Jesus and to love, right? Those are, that's one command in a sense, right? That's wrapped up with two actions. We believe in Christ. We love, uh, John six twenty nine. you know, it says that what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is the work of God that you believe in the one whom he sent. Right. And so I guess that's what I was thinking whenever, you know, kind of put my Calvinist hat on, uh, for a second, since we did debate, uh, does regeneration precede faith, Right. And it seems like what you're saying at that point then is that there is a bad tree. And this is why I specifically, you know, worded it as unregenerate person, right? That's the bad tree. The unregenerate man is the bad tree. The regenerate person is the good tree that produces good works. And if faith is a good thing that we do, it seems like what you're saying, if faith precedes regeneration, that you have a bad tree that's doing a good work, but you would... Uh, distinguish there between faith, between trust, right? Believing in Christ and then good works, like you had said a minute ago, that, you know, following the commands of God. Is that fair or? It, it is. Now, okay. to uh, to address what you just said, I'm going to step away from the exegesis of John 15 because I think that's a separate question. Yeah, but I yeah, want yeah. to address your, your question because I think it's a really, really, really good one. Okay. And I, I'm also going to bracket. Well, what's the solution? Because is it regeneration preceding faith or is it preceding grace? Let's set that aside because okay. I think you're you're hitting a, 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 an important question. You're saying, hey, look, if you know we're not able to obey God's commands and he's commanding us to believe, how is it that we're able to believe? And I think that's a very, very strong argument. Now, I would say that this argument does not directly apply to Warren, but I think it does apply to a lot of provisionists because if Warren is at least questioning, if not throwing out concupiscence, mm -hmm. then he's not even accepting your first preference premise that we're unable to obey God's commands. He's saying we can obey God's commands. Right. So for him, it's not a problem. Of course we can believe because we can obey God's commands, but for the provisionists who are willing to grant that because of the fall, we have an inclination to sin and we can't obey God's commands, at least not perfectly or fully, mm -hmm. then I think what you got is the Indiana Jones in the refrigerator, right? Because you remember like the nuclear bomb goes off and his solution is, well, I'll just hide in the fridge. Okay. Right. How is it that our ability to obey the command to believe the gospel survived in this refrigerator <laughs> and then the other, like all the other abilities to obey all of God's other commands got blown up in the nuclear blast. Right. Right. So I think you're, on to a very important point that I agree with you. It doesn't so much apply to Warren's position since he denies concupiscence altogether. Sure. But I think a lot of provisionists would have a little bit of a tough time explaining why it is that we, why is it the fall knocked out all these other abilities to obey God's commands, but not the ability to uh, believe the gospel? or obey the command to believe the gospel. Right, right, right on. Dale, any uh, any follow-up? You nailed it, though, Dan, uh, so thank you. I see him smiling over there. What you got, What you got, Dale? Um, well, I was going to say something, but I think you guys kind of covered it, actually. So, okay. um, yeah, Tyler, I think that your question to Dan was pretty much what I was going to go for. Um, 
yeah um i guess just to okay so warren mentioned a specific bible verse you being evil how do you but you know how to give good gifts um i know you've kind of answered that through tyler's question but did you want to re respond to that verse in particular like what do you mean good gifts there shouldn't be any good gifts then right because they're well, so that that goes back to total versus utter depravity, right? So giving good gifts to your kids, you know, giving your kid a birthday present rather than, you know, uh, doing murdering your kids, you know, uh, is good, right? It's better. Now, is it pleasing to God? Is it acceptable? Well, whatever done without faith is sin, right? It, you know, without faith, it is impossible to please God. It's not done for God's glory. Is the reason why an unbeliever is giving that uh, their their kids a present, if it, if they have the wrong motivations, then it's still tainted with sin. Now it's better than the even the Christian next to him, the regenerate Christian next to him, who's not doing those things. But it's only a relative good, not um, truly pleasing to God. Gotcha. All right, Tyler. Last. Yep, we've got, so this is the question that Drew Russell had asked before we even, uh, well, actually, I had uh, promoted this show yesterday, and this was one of the comments that I found uh, on him, or, or on there, <clears throat> and uh, and so I'll, let me ask the question, and then Dan, I'll get your opinion, Dell, I'll get your opinion, and then I'll give my opinion on this, and then uh, I guess if there's nothing else, if we don't have any more audience questions, uh, then we can then we can wrap up. Uh, I do want to thank every uh, so Michael and both Mitch uh, that gave us a super chat today. Thank you all so much. We really really appreciate it. That is uh, one way to support our ministry. Uh, I think and it and it's cool because you can actually choose um, what you like what the donation is, and so it can be anywhere from I think it's like the the least. I could be wrong on this, but I think the least is like ninety nine cent. And then it just goes up from there. So 20, 30, 40, whatever. Right. Um, so, uh, like I said, I really appreciate that. Um, also, if you would like to uh, financially support our ministry, um, email me faithunaltered at gmail.com. I will send you a link to where you can donate. The only reason I don't have this up anywhere is because uh, we don't have a website yet. And so we're working. I would love to get a website up and running by 2024. That's kind of one of the goals that I've got set back. Um, I'm trying to find somebody that could possibly do that. And so we'll have that uh, up there. If you cannot uh, financially support our ministry, you can still support our ministry by sharing our content. That is the way to, you know, get, you know, more views. Uh, the YouTube algorithm likes comments. It likes thumbs ups. So if you like the content, uh, please give us a thumbs up, share it, and then comment and let us know what you thought. It takes a whole one minute to do all three of those things, um, but that would be a good way to support our ministry as well. So, Dan, here's the audience question. Um, what are the parameters we're alluding to when we ask if any particular concept is a biblical concept? And why isn't there a greater consensus among theologians about what makes a concept a biblical one? So for me, the, the first and foremost is one, the concepts that are derived directly from the exegesis of scripture. Um, if it's, you know, it, it certainly can be um, 
derived from multiple passages of scripture. Of course, when you have multiple things saying the same thing, that, that's very uh, helpful in confirming that it's a biblical concept. It also can be comparing precept upon precept, so you can, you know, compare two different scriptures together and get a full picture, compare a bunch of them to get not just the idea, but the, uh, the, the foundation underneath it. Now, to something that Dale had said earlier, it's also true that you can take a the biblical exegesis and um, find out what are the logical implications of that. The way I would describe that is um, a connect the dots, right? So the exegesis is like the dots, but then you can draw lines between the dots and get like this picture and, oh, there's the giraffe. You know, I didn't, didn't realize he was there. So, but he was there the whole time. And so I think that still is biblical, a biblical concept. Um, but we have to be more careful when we're doing that. Now, where some people, I think, misuse the term a biblical concept is, well, I have this idea and it doesn't contradict any Bible passages. So an example of that might be like a Roman Catholic who say, okay, well, Mary was bodily assumed into heaven. Well, okay, there's no passage in scripture that says that's wrong, at least no obvious one that says, no, no, Mary didn't get assumed into heaven. So they're saying, well, it's biblical because it doesn't contradict anything in the Bible. That idea I'm more concerned about. I would, I would not put the label biblical on that. Now, why do people disagree? So to me, it usually comes down to what are their presuppositions going in to reading Bible passages? You know, um, I mean, so, so provisions are going to get mad at me by saying this, but I'm going to say it anyway. So there's the certain enlightenment ideas that I frankly are appealing, like the odd implies can, like where exactly does that apply? Is it this universal principle? Tabula rasa, are we what we do, right? Or do we come, you know, fully equipped with a nature and a conscience and uh, inclination to sin and this sort of thing? Um, you know, there, there's other ideas. I think um, to some extent, when these when these um, presuppositions are brought to the scriptures, you're going to end up with a different result, mm-hmm. um, and that's why I think debates can be helpful. Is because you know when you're you're in cross examination, some some ideas don't stand up well to uh, the exegesis, you know, scrutinizing the exegesis of certain passages. So, anyways, I I don't know if that uh, scratched the itch, but um, you know I, I guess I'll I'll have to leave it at that. Um, all right. No, I, I think it does. Dell, what's uh? So I'll restate the question. So, what are the parameters we're alluding to when we ask if any particular concept is a biblical concept, and why isn't there a greater consensus among theologians about what makes a concept a biblical one? Yeah. Um. So I think I more or less agree with Dan. Um. I mean, yeah. Obviously, in terms of what the Bible teaches, uh, that. You know, when it's in an explicit verse or you have this cumulative thing where you get different aspects and put it, put the pieces together. That's a biblical doctrine and that sort of thing. Um, that makes kind of sense in, in, in the sense that everything that you have in a specific verse has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. So you can't uh, obviously if there's a, a contradiction in the doctrine you're reading out then something's wrong there, right? You should look at that. Am I committing eisegesis or exegesis Mm. um, and figure that stuff out? So that's, you know, proper hermeneutics and systematic theology when using the Bible directly. 
Um, same deal when you're deriving further uh, doctrines and that sort of thing based on the Bible and putting the pieces together. Uh, you have to make sure that's all good. Um, in terms of stuff that's not derived from the Bible in any way, that's definitely not biblical, even if it's true, right? Like there's general revelation and stuff like that. Like, okay, modern science, scientific knowledge, uh, the theory of gravity. Great. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable calling that biblical, but it is God's truth nonetheless, right? Um, it's just revealed through a different means. So yeah, yeah I guess I guess as an underlying principle, so, something that is either in um, the Bible explicitly, uh, or is uh, can be logically entailed implicitly from the biblical text itself. That's the parameters of okay. That's a biblical doctrine type deal. Uh, this what was the the other part you wanted me to answer? Why isn't there a greater consensus among theologians about what makes a concept a biblical concept? Okay, so that okay, so that's different than what I th I thought it was. I thought you were just okay. saying why are there differences on what the doctrines are. What so like, I I'll be honest, I don't know what theologians generally say as to the reasons, um, as to what the reasons are. Um, yeah, so I have no idea. Like, what are there schools of thought as to why people have, have well, these differences or? Dan, you can jump in on this too, but I think it's kind of what Dan was alluding to whenever we talk about like, so for example, what I was going to say in my answer was, you know, if there's something that's not specifically mentioned in the scriptures or alluded to implicitly, right? Mm -hmm. But it's still something. So for example, icons, I, I, I haven't found in, so in Eastern Orthodoxy, there's the tradition of icons, you know, this is something the church has practiced. Uh, so on and so forth, right? But I mean, is even this... you guys wouldn't say tradition? Sorry, I interrupted you, but tradition no, is biblical, right? Even for you guys, it's well, I would so right. I wouldn't say it's a biblical concept. I mean, there might be. I I, I don't know. I I would have to look into that a little bit further. But off the top, there is nothing in Scripture to my mind that directly or implicitly allude to icons galatians 3 1 it, that that's maybe a tricky one but whatever right let's just take for example there is nothing right okay. i would say that's a traditional thing right it's not a biblical concept it's a traditional concept right and even you know we have godly traditions right we have traditions of god and traditions of man and so, but I would still label that, right, as a traditional concept versus a biblical concept because of those two primary reasons that you guys uh, even stated. It's not directly mentioned, and it's not implicitly alluded to. So that, that would be my answer. Um, so if, if you know, just because I'm, like I said, I've never yeah. heard of any what what are like the what are the different opinions because i think me and dan are on the same page it sounds like you are on the same page yeah. so like what what would be an alternative view as to what counts as biblical because it sounds to me like everyone we we kind of agree i don't know i wish drew was watching uh so he could maybe uh fill uh the gap in on that one dan do you know because i don't off the top um no i mean i think we've I think we've addressed it, but uh, I mean, people disagree with on the uses of scripture probably because hey, I got the solution. Everyone just needs to agree with me, and then we're all good. <laughs> yeah, there we go. No, I, there you go. I think honestly, I think sin is a problem. You know, pride is a problem. You know, yeah. it's got to be. We we have to pray 
before we're reading scripture and, and be focused in that, in that way. Um, Tyler, by the way, you mentioned uh, to um, my friend Turton fan is going to be on Donnie's channel, Standing for Truth, on the 12th, a couple days from now, debating icons with an Eastern Orthodox theologian. Who? Uh, you, who? Uh, yeah, who's, he, who's he debating? I will I will get you a name. I have forgotten the name. Um, Bob. Did you see the the, uh, the uh, icon debate that we hosted? Oh, uh, I need to. So yeah, um, you might mention that to uh, Turton fans. So uh, just to you know, if he's if he's looking and in, in researching. So we had a debate with Pastor Samuel Farag and Father Jonathan Ivanoff, uh, Orthodox priest and a Protestant pastor. So that's uh, that was really good. A three hour bro over three hours of discussion. So there's a lot there. So I definitely have him check it out before he debates. But but anyway, sounds good. Yeah. So it's a uh, so Turton fan is debating a Craig T R U G L I A. Craig, Craig yeah yeah I know I know Craig. Um, I, I, I'm trying to get him on the show. Um, but okay yeah yeah he uh oh what's his I I don't remember it off the top but he does have a YouTube channel um that that discusses orthodoxy so that'll be a good one that that will be very very interesting. But you said you had a question, Dan? No 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 go go ahead go ahead. Um, oh, okay. Um, no, fair enough. But yeah, get uh, get Turks and fans to check out that debate because um, with Craig, I'm not saying that he can't, right? But but Craig will definitely bring his A game. So from what I've seen from Craig, he's a really good apologist uh, whenever it comes to the orthodox position. He knows his stuff really well. Um, but okay. So Dan, we did have one more audience question that came in earlier that uh, I, I totally missed, but it didn't have really anything to do with this discussion. So here's the last question and then we'll wrap. Dan, did you watch McGrew and Fisher's review? I think he means uh, McGrew and Flowers' review, and yes, I did. Um, okay. And it was helpful. Um, you know, so they they brought some clarification to it. To be honest, that's where it started to become more and more apparent to me where Warren it was arguing against penal substitution in the atonement. Um, so I, I found it maybe uncomfortable for Dr. Flowers at certain points, because I think even though he and Warren were united in their opposition to total depravity, I don't think they were arguing from the same foundation on that point. Um, but yeah, it's a helpful review. Um, and yes, uh, in, a, in fact, I um, commented on it as well. So. so did they review this debate that we just reviewed or? They did, yes. Oh, okay. All right, I'll check that out as well before Warren comes on. Then, but. yeah, it's on the Soteriology 101, and um, I think it's just called a review of the total depravity debate, something like that. But it would have been last um, last week. Okay, all right, that'll be helpful then. All right, Dale, um, any closing thoughts for you? Then we'll go to Dan. Final words, and then I will take us out. Um, yeah, so I guess uh, first to give the closing. So yeah, thank you, Dan, for being a guest on the show and giving your take on all these questions and, and probing challenges and, and all of that stuff. I, I found it interesting um, hearing your take and on a lot of the stuff that we I kind of agree with you on, even though I, I, there are some aspects of total depravity that I wouldn't go for. So that was interesting to, to get your thoughts on and to, to learn more about your perspective there. Dan, what's your closing remarks, sir? Oh, uh, thank you guys for having me on. So just to recap. Okay, so because of the fall, right, the, the, we are at enmity with the Messiah. As the seed of the serpent, 
um, we are at enmity of the seed of the woman. So that's Genesis 3.15. Mm -hmm. And we can see in Romans 8 that not only are we at enmity, but we can't please God because we're at, at that enmity. So God has to take the initiative. He draws, he illuminates, he convicts, um, he calls, and those are things that he's doing currently actively in our lives. Even people that have the clear presentation of the gospel, like in John 6 and like in 2 Corinthians 4, um, two, 3 through 4, we need a special work of God in our hearts to be able to believe the gospel. That's what the Bible teaches, so that's what I believe. But thanks again for having me on. This was a real pleasure getting to uh, get to know you guys a little better and hang out. I appreciate your welcoming me. I felt uh, very comfortable and, and relaxed here, and that's uh, in large part to um, you guys and the the approach you have. So I, I really appreciated the uh, the environment that you've created here. No problem. Since uh, oh, there's Tyler. Okay. Sorry, sorry, my little girl ran off and she was really really quiet for a little bit. So I was like, mm, something's up. All right, I don't anyway. have my chance to take over, but no. Okay. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> nope, I'm going to sit here. No, no I'm just fine. All right, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. We've got to get you on more often. I thought this was a very, uh, just a, a lively discussion over a lively debate, right? And so I was very impressed with the way that you and Warren debated. I thought, man, you all did on that debate what we were really trying to promote here on Faith Unaltered, right? You guys were extremely cordial with one another, and it shows that, you know, you can disagree on things and still love each other as brothers in Christ. And so I really, really appreciate uh, that aspect from the debate itself. And so, I mean, that's what we want to do here. I mean, we all have, you know, different disagreements whenever it comes to things, but that doesn't mean we got to be hateful. There's enough of that going on on Facebook and social media already. And so the more we can stomp that out, I think through love, the better off ultimately we will be. And so again, Dan, thank you so much. Dale, is there any announcements uh, that you have for Real Seekers? I know I've got, we've got a lot of shows coming up. So I've been kind of uh, a little crazy in booking shows uh, for Faith Unaltered. Um, but Dale, if you want to go ahead and tell our audience what you have coming up on Real Seekers, um, go this for week? it. Uh, so, okay. Uh, so guess what? Nothing. Um, what like I said this this week is kind of it's, it's supposed to be my week off, although Tyler is now booked three shows. So I, I'm sorry. Gonna, uh, yeah. Nope. Um, <laughs> I'm going to I got three shows. So I got this. Uh, I guess the next one coming up is on Friday night or Friday during the day. Right. Friday um, at 10 a.m. Yes. 10 that's 10 a.m. Our time. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we're going to have a bunch of Orthodox people coming on Father Jonathan and uh, Josh Sherman and Caleb yep. Bullens and some others. And they're going to be saying, giving their reasons why why are they Orthodox and that sort of thing. So I think that'll be interesting. I know I kind of uh, poo-pooed on them a little bit uh, as a joke <laughs> last night, but I am actually interested in this topic. I want to. I do want to hear why do why do they think Orthodoxy is true or the best version of Christianity? So that'll be good. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Hey, you... or Stacy or something. Kelsey. Kelsey, okay. Yes, Sully. <laughs> I was but... better than Dan. Dan didn't even know that much. So <laughs> Oh, do you wanna do you want the headphones? So here. All right. So... She's gonna say something to y'all, I'm assuming. But all right. Well, if she's not, I am. So we Hi. there she goes. Hello. Hey, hey, Kelsey. Kate, can you say bye-bye? Bye. -bye? bye. <laughs>
Can you say Ty? <laughs> My dad I is. <laughs> happy birthday. Right. She's singing happy birthday to you. you say, so. All right, hop down. So on Faith Unaltered, like Dell said, we've got, I have been, and Dell, feel free, like I said, if you don't, uh, if you want to take one of those days off, man, you've done a lot for Faith Unaltered recently. And so by all means, do not feel bad if you want to take one of those days off. I would love to have you here for the Orthodox uh, discussion, but if you want to take Saturday off, bro, feel free. Um, but we do have a show. Uh, so 10 a.m. Uh, this Friday coming up, uh, like Dell said, uh, and, and that's Eastern time. Also, this Saturday at 1 p.m., uh, kind of the same concept. Instead of a panel, I'm interviewing just one guy, Mitch Murphy. He's the uh, guy that gave us a $5.50 super chat uh, earlier in this episode. Uh, so I'll be interviewing him, why he left Protestantism to go to Orthodoxy. Then next Wednesday at 7 p.m., we've got Warren McGrew on to discuss this very uh, debate. So we'll be getting the review from his side. Then on the 19th at 7 p.m., uh, the Protestant episode that David has put together. I know that's going to be interesting why these guys have not left Protestantism uh, for, for orthodoxy. And so that'll be uh, really good. We got some TikTok. I know Priscilla is coming on. Uh, I think Destiny Vargas, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she goes by Priscilla as well on TikTok, I'm pretty sure. And then there's a couple others. Uh, the Black Doctor, uh, Jeremiah Short, is coming on for that discussion as well. And uh, I think that's all. Um, I know. I know there's a couple more guys, but they're first time, uh, first time uh, participants on the show. Uh, then on the 26th, so this is the next Friday at 7 p.m. I am interviewing a uh, lady that I met on TikTok. So her name is Courtney, and she's got a similar testimony to mine. We were both addicted to drugs before we came to Christ, and so we're going to be giving our testimony. She's going to be giving her testimony. I'm going to be answering or asking her questions about it. Uh, about her uh, experience with drugs. And then in June, I'm not going to list all these. We can wait till June before I start promoting these, but we've already got June filled. So every Friday at 7 p.m. is booked, uh, ready to go. So the role of music in church, biblical ar archaeology, a married debate. So between Father Ivanov and uh, uh, or Father Jonathan Ivanov and Pastor Samuel Fragg, we are, they are getting back together. So the two that debated the icons, now they're debating Mary. Uh, so that's going to be really fun. And then uh, Nicholas Soliner, a friend of mine from Evansville, just right down the road from me, is coming on to talk paranormal. So ghosties and ghoulies and all things like that. So kind of a lax June. Uh, and then we'll pick back up with the Orthodox stuff uh, come July. I think David, uh, Dell, have you talked to Luis uh, or Luis Dazon about uh, debating David? Has, has that came about anymore? Um, so we're set up for like Canada Day weekend, like June 30th, I think. But we haven't worked out um, the details. I was waiting a little bit closer to to work everything out and stuff. But yeah, it'll probably go ahead. It'll probably no, I was going to say, let me know, because if you guys are going to do that at seven, I've got to reschedule Nick. So let me know um, if but I'll give you guys precedence over that. Uh, let me know if it's going to be at 7 p.m. If not, we're good, right? But if it's going to overlap with 7, let me know ASAP so I can reschedule Nick. But other than that, we're good. Okay. So. Sounds good. So. All right, ladies and gentlemen. Again, a big thank you to Dan Chapa. Uh, find us all over wherever your podcast listening pleasure is pleasurable. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but we are on Google and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
um, Audible, Amazon Music, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, and all the other places where you get your podcast episodes. So other than that, y'all, thank you so much. It's been fun. Good night. God bless and stay like Christ.